Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. That is the legendary Christine McPhee of Fleetwood Mac. Sad that she's gone at the age of 79, but there will never be another. She was so talented. She was a singer, a songwriter. It's people. a huge loss for the group. Don't I you mean, think? She just was such the a, world. She was yeah. such a presence. Yeah, yeah, for all of us. She was such a presence on stage. You saw them in concert. I saw them in concert a few years ago in Washington. It was such a good concert. Yeah, I mean. Amazing. You were just saying it's a songwriter, and well, she's both. Well, people talk about the singers, and the singers are great, yeah. but it's the songwriters who actually write the song. When you think about, when you think about I Will Always Love You, we love Whitney Houston, but Dolly Parton wrote that song, yeah. you know, and you think about all the things, even um, she wrote that, uh, Say You Love Me, You Make Loving Fun, Hold Me, Don't Stop. Little we're Lies. Talk about all of that. Little, yeah. Tell Me Lies, Tell Me Sweet Little Lies, a lot mm-hmm. of that. So we're going to honor her and talk about her because there will never be another. Good morning, everyone. We're just reminiscing about Christine McPhee. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, it's the first day of December. Can you believe it? Is it? Yes, it is. Uh-huh. So here's the thing. Poppy is all excited about this. So I should, well. Excited. Has, depressed. Poppy is, has all the inside information on this story, ah. I, I should say. And we're talking about broke former billionaire. What the former FTX CEO is now blaming for the collapse of his business empire and how much money he claims is left in his bank account. You're going to want to hear that. We're also going to explain why it matters to you, right? Average folks, everyone across America. Also, the market's surging after the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said smaller rate hikes are likely coming this month. Does this mean we are turning the corner on inflation? And welcome to Boston. Fans at the Celtics game chanting USA as the Prince and Princess of Wales, as you see them there, sat courtside. This is their first trip in eight years. We'll tell you why they're here, where they're going next on their trip in the United States. Yeah, well, it's Boston, so they should have expected that because we know what Boston is like. (laughs) They tell you exactly how they feel. This is where we're going to start with, though, because this is really, really important to you. Smaller rate hikes could be on the way. That announcement from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell triggering a sharp rise in the Dow and the S&P 500 and NASDAQ, not to mention all of those 401ks, power suggesting it may be uh, time for the Federal Reserve to be less aggressive in its fight against inflation. I want you to listen to this. It makes sense to moderate the pace of our rate increases as we approach the level of restraint that will be sufficient to bring inflation down. The time for moderating the pace of rate increases may come as soon as the December meeting. So we're going to get in on all of this. There she is, what it means for you and your bottom line and all of that. Joining us now um, is CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon. Good morning, good morning to you. Poppy, take it away. This uh, is a ball game. I was good to hear him <laughs> say that, I think, for just in terms of an indication, right, that maybe we're getting a handle on this inflation. 
Um, but what does it mean for everyone watching at home? Yeah, I think it was great news for investors. This is the sign that they have been waiting for. Finally, some smaller rate hikes after, what, six meetings straight of rate hikes. And the last four, by the way, were pretty massive. So what it means for people at home is you're probably not going to see your credit card rate go down, but maybe it won't continue to go up as much. And indirectly, it's good for all of us because essentially what Powell said is, we know we have done a lot. We have raised hikes, uh, raised rates almost four percentage points since March. We're going to take a wait and see approach and just sort of see how this all is impacted and really felt in the real economy. And that should be a breath of relief for all of us. But the question is, why is he saying this now? Because I know people were watching closely to see what he did say. What's driving his, his remarks? Well, I mean, I think an acknowledgement of reality, which is the fact that they have done a lot. I mean, they have raised rates more in the last since March than uh, I mean, you'd have to go back to like the early 70s, the late 70s to see something similar. They have done a massive amount to put it put it this way. Let's say your auto loan rate was like 5 percent in March. They've raised rates 4 percent since then. So suddenly now you have an auto rate of 9 percent in just that short period of time. Now, interest rates aren't one to one with what the what Powell does. But what I'm saying is they have done so much in a very short period of time. So to your point, why he's doing it now is because they have to wait and see. They have to see how this is being really felt in the economy because there's a lag in terms of what they do and when it's really felt in the economy. People at home don't know because they're like, wait, uh, I know. Uh, I know. how should they, like they're saying, how should I feel about this? What's the real story when it comes to the economy? Well, I mean, I don't know that there was a huge shift in narrative, right? I mean, they're still raising rates. I mean, he, they, they're not cutting rates just yet, right? So all of the same concerns still exist. But I do think that it is a sign of relief for investors, economists, all of us, that Powell acknowledged we know that there is a risk of doing too much and unnecessarily hurting the economy. And so we're going to wait. We're going to see how this really plays out in the economy. We don't want to do more damage than is necessary. So they're going to sort of take a breather. Thank we can you. all breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah, I'll breathe, <laughs> breathe a sigh of relief. But you can't go anywhere because we're going to have you a little bit later on in the okay. show. So thank you, Rahel Salman. Really appreciate that. Also this morning, former FTX CEO Samuel Blankman-Fried, who was once one of the richest people in the world, says he only has $100,000 left in his bank account. This is after his company plunged into bankruptcy like a few weeks ago. Uh, just a few months ago, his wealth was estimated to be $26 billion. Let's bring in CNN Chief Business Correspondent. $26 billion in yeah. Christine Romans. But, but yes, and that's the stunning headline, but that, I think, belies the point of... The point of all of this is the huge risk of this unregulated crypto market for and everyone. this was something that was positioned as the entrance for real people into the crypto market, right? I'm not going to cry many tears about Sam Bankman-Fried and his on paper, $26 billion, but there could be real investors who have no idea how much they've lost and whether they'll be able uh, to get it back. You know, it's impossible to know how much he lost, but it's a remarkable picture of a crypto empire with no oversight, mm -hmm. no transparency, no CFO, no regulation, and its founder, at times, with no clue. I mean, look, I, I've had a bad month. Disgraced FTX founder and ex-CEO Sam Bankman-Fried speaking out on camera for the first time since he resigned after the implosion of his multi-billion dollar empire. I'm down to, uh, I think I have one working credit card left. I think it, I think it might be $100,000 or something like that. Bankman-Fried, who was known as crypto's white knight, sitting for a wide-ranging interview at the New York Times Deal Book Summit, speaking about FTX's liquidity crisis and bankruptcy filing. I didn't ever uh, try to commit fraud on anyone. 
The collapse of FTX is under civil and federal investigations into whether FTX misappropriated customers' funds when it made loans to his hedge fund, Alameda Research. Bankman Freed addressing this. I didn't knowingly commingle funds. I was frankly surprised by how big Alameda's position was. Bankman Freed now acknowledging the lack of corporate controls and risk management within the businesses he oversaw. Look, I screwed up. Like, I was CEO. I, I was the CEO of FTX. And I mean, and I'd say this again and again, that that means I had a responsibility. That means that I was responsible. Ultimately, there was no person who was chiefly in charge of positional risk of customers on FTX. And that feels pretty embarrassing in retrospect. FTX, which was once marketed as an easy way for people to get into crypto using star athletes like Tom Brady, Naomi Osaka and Steph Curry and even a Super Bowl ad with Larry David to amplify the platform. Edison, can I be honest with you? It stinks. Now its customers don't know how much, if anything, they'll be able to get back. Yeah, just a shame. Marketing for Main Street uh, Mm -hmm. right there in those Super Bowl ads, right? Trying to become as common as buying an index fund. It is not an index fund. It is not a plain vanilla regulated bank account or investment. And it's going to be a cold, cold, hard truth that a lot of people will face on this. And I think what Andrew Ross Sorkin did so well in that interview was he talked about the effect. He said he had gotten thousands of letters of people saying, I put $2 million into this. That was my life savings. And now, you know, what am I supposed Andrew to do? Andrew did an amazing he job did. in that. It was a conversation. And to also, we were talking about earlier, to see a CEO ever? Have you ever seen? No. I'm sure his CEO? lawyers are saying, like, do not like shut that? your mouth. I mean, he's making these admissions. Uh, and he, at one point, he said he thinks that people might be able to get some of their money back in the U.S. and Japan, yeah. but gave no indication about how. His lawyers are saying, shut your mouth, don't talk. Well, any true. lawyer would tell. Yeah. He said I'm that. not a lawyer. Any lawyer would say, stop talking. We have a lot of litigation to go through here. Thank you, Christine. All right. Also this morning, Congress is one step closer to potentially averting a rail strike. That's that rail strike that President Biden warned just a few days ago would devastate the United States economy. He said it could cost an estimated $2 billion per day. The House overwhelmingly passing legislation that would that would basically give the deal both sides. It would adopt the deal that was reached by both sides back in September. Lawmakers also passing a measure that provides seven days of additional paid sick leaves to workers. The question is whether or not the Senate is going to pass that. They will need the support of at least 10 Republicans in that 50-50 Senate to get that passed. Also this morning, Democrats are calling in their closer when it comes to Georgia. Former President Obama is going to be there campaigning today for Senator Raphael Warnock. Obama is already headlining Warnock's closing ad campaign ahead of Tuesday's runoff election against Republican challenger Herschel Walker. Georgia, serious times call for special leaders. Leaders you can trust. Leaders who are driven by something bigger than politics. That's why you need to reelect my friend and your senator, Reverend Raphael Warnock. The question is whether or not that message is appealing to voters. CNN's Eva McKend is live on the ground in Atlanta. You have been following this race incredibly closely. What are you hearing from voters? Because over a million of them have already voted in these early days of voting. Well, good morning, Caitlin. I want to begin with the Obama visit because when he was here just about a month ago, it was the most fired up that I have seen Georgia Democrats. He was over in College Park. The line stretched around the arena. And when you talk about runoff elections. It is principally a turnout game 
which side can turn out the most voters. It makes a lot of sense for him to, for them, the campaign, to be calling him back here uh, to really energize uh, the Democratic base. I would imagine we are going to hear from him uh, a lot of what he said just four weeks ago uh, when he essentially argued that Herschel Walker was a great football player, uh, but not uh, in a position to serve in the United States Senate. Caitlin. And so when it comes to the voters, you know, there are those 200,000 voters who did vote for the Republican governor just a few weeks ago, but did not vote for the Republican Senate candidate. I know that they've been trying to appeal for them. Is Herschel Walker out on the road? What is his schedule looking like in these last few days? Both of the candidates have very busy schedules, and you are right, both sides trying to capture those moderate voters. As I've been out on the trail, though, speaking to people, I was at a Latinos for Warnock event last night talking about uh, star power with Obama, uh, Tessa Thompson and America Ferreira uh, were there. But as I was speaking to voters, it seems as though both sides really have their minds made up. Uh, one woman told me uh, that she is actually more progressive than Senator Warnock, but uh, supports him and believes he does a good job of appealing to moderates uh, in this southern state. Meanwhile, Herschel Walker supporters tell me that they think that uh, the national media underestimates him uh, and that the national media also underestimates the ground game that Republicans have in this state. Take a listen to what I'm hearing. Being out here uh, to see Senator Warnock um, and having him kind of be part of the voice that we, we've been wanting for so long here in Atlanta. When Herschel decided to run for Senate, it was a no-brainer for us. We don't know his opponent, but we do know Herschel. So there are two days left of early voting in this state, today and tomorrow. And then, of course, uh, folks can vote on Election Day on December 6th. Caitlin? And everyone is looking to see what will happen on Tuesday, 50 or 51 seats for Democrats. So thanks so much, Eva. And just ahead, I also spoke with Georgia voters this week. We'll tell you what they said was their top priority as they were going and voting early. Also this this morning. Prince William and Kate Middleton arrived in Boston for the first trip to the U.S. in nearly 10 years. Ooh. And this was nice. This was nice. They met with Boston royalty, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the Prince and Princess of Wales really are waking up in Boston this morning. The royal couple sat courtside last night to watch Celtics take on the Miami Heat. William and Kate were spotted clapping and cheering the players on throughout the game. It is their first trip abroad since the death of Queen Elizabeth. And tomorrow, William and Kate will hand out awards for their Earthshot Prize. While in the States, the White House says that they will also meet with President Biden. We're going to get straight now. Max Foster is live for us in Boston on this side of the pond this morning. Max, controversy uh, following uh, the couple across the ocean. Good morning to you. Yeah, it's really, I mean, Donald, it's been one thing after another. Um, they had this racism scandal back in the UK, just breaking as they landed. Then they went to their first ceremony and it was pouring with rain. And the other special guests, John Kerry and Caroline Kennedy, couldn't make it to that. Then they turn up to the game last night. I was there, but just after the booing that you heard there. But there was booing and there were chants of USA, USA. Uh, but by the time I arrived and was asking people about it, I think it had more to do with, you know, 
that Boston um, sense that uh, they are the cradle of the American Revolution, the Boston Tea Party. It was a really spirited event. So I'm not sure that was personal, uh, but it does seem to be one thing after another for this couple during this tour. But of course, everyone's hearing about it. Lots of publicity around the event as well. Yeah. So let's talk about this. And I said the controversy followed. There's an honorary member of the British royal family has resigned and apologized after questioning whether a black British woman was really British at a royal event earlier this week. What can you tell us about that? Well, that woman's been on uh, British radio this morning, doubling down on exactly what happened. And it's, uh, you know, really hard to read the transcript of the conversation uh, where this senior royal age, you know, a really central part of the Buckingham Palace machinery for decades, was grilling her. And she says she felt um, interrogated and she felt it was an abuse. She kept on saying she was British. But this aide kept on asking her where she was from, where in Africa she was from, where her people were from. When she arrived in the UK, I mean, it was a really offensive conversation. The palace did recognise it straight away. She has stepped down. There's an investigation ongoing and Prince William's team had to address it here, saying there's no place for racism in society. I mean, we were reading that, Poppy, that transcript. I wasn't sure it was real. I, was like, I couldn't real? believe it. It kept going and going and going. Yeah. After she said, I'm a British national, you know, it was just yeah. like really surprising. All thank right, you, Max. Max, thank you very much. Enjoy being on this side. It's good to see you. Uh, just ahead, we're going to talk about just declassified new documents revealing how President Biden passed the buck when he was warned about an imminent Al Qaeda attack before 9-11. Plus this. And the She was a legend looking back on the life and career of Fleetwood Mac songbird Christine McVie. Next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Christine McVie, the singer-songwriter behind some of Fleetwood Mac's biggest hits, has died. Her family confirmed the sad news on her verified Instagram, and they wrote in part, quote, she passed away peacefully at a hospital following a short illness. She was in the company of her family. Of course, her band members paid her tribute, calling her one of a kind, special and talented beyond measure, adding she was the best musician anyone could have in their band and the best friend anyone could have in their life. We were so lucky to have had a life with her. The prolific musician is known for hits like Songbird from Fleetwood Mac's groundbreaking album Rumors, one of the best-selling albums of all time. She also wrote Don't Stop, which gained a second round of popularity when Bill Clinton used it as his campaign song. And there you see McVie and the band members performed at Clinton's inauguration in 93. It is something that McVie said she never expected for the song that inspired people for decades. I think the words are sort of very adaptable to a million different circumstances. I mean, I, for one, visualize it more being used for sort of an insurance company or something than a sort of political campaign song. 
Bill Clinton also put out a statement uh, thanking them for letting him use it and, and what a pleasure it was to know them. She was just 79 years old, and her death comes in a year when the world has lost a host of other treasured musicians from Naomi Judd to the Foo Fighters, Taylor Hawkins, Meatloaf, Ronnie Spector of the Ronettes, Jerry Lee Lewis, Loretta Lynn, Olivia Newton-John, Coolio, and just a few days ago, fame's Irene Cara. Oh. So let's talk about the life, the woman, all the talent. With us now, a senior music writer for Rolling Stone, Brittany Spanos. Brittany, thank you for being here. Thank you so much Aww. for having me. Yeah. What a, what a woman. Yeah, I'm a huge Fleetwood Mac fan, so this yeah. was really devastating to find out the news yesterday. Yeah. yeah. There's, there'll never be... I'm sorry, go ahead. We no, no, we go off. This sort of era of band and songwriter and even the type of people that they were, it, no, it's, yeah. it's over. She was a legend, and I just think that this... It's, I can't even explain the loss at this point. Yeah, I mean, looking back on just the trajectory of her career, I mean, she was a blues mu musician for many years with Chicken Shack and then Fleetwood Mac's early years. And for her to sort of transition from that into one of the greatest pop songwriters, pop melody writers in music history is really incredible. I mean, to think about what she did in the 70s with Rumors to make some of the best love songs on a, on a massive breakup album and to then kind of translate that to synth pop in the 80s and continue to keep Fleetwood Mac at their height for decades is really incredible. Yeah, and even still seeing them perform in recent years, they were still just amazing. Is there a backstory to the Clinton uh, song yeah. there? Because that is such like, that's like indelible. It's like what people always think of in a moment yeah. like this. I mean, that was a, a reunion that Fleetwood Mac wasn't expecting to do at that point. They had broken up in 1987. They had a very tumultuous breakup, like everything else in the band. There was a lot of drama and they were not anticipating getting back together. And so for that to happen and for it to be this moment of, of hope for a lot of people. The song is um, a very optimistic song, again, on a very messy breakup album. And for that song to have that second life, this political life for it was really extraordinary and brought the band back together for, for a brief moment. Then they kind of went their separate ways again. Yeah. And then later in the 90s, we're like, OK, we're doing this for real. <laughs> I loved um, one of the things that was written in the obituary uh, in The New York Times uh, last night. They wrote her soulful, soulful contralto could sound by turns maternally wise and sexually alive. Yeah. Now that right? is a sentence. <laughs> that is a sentence, right? It was just so rare. Yeah, I mean, especially with two other lead singers in the band, which again, like, is the most incredible part about Fleetwood Mac. You have three of the best songwriters in rock and, and pop history. You have three of the great vocalists in rock and pop history all together in one band doing, you know, equal parts on all these albums. And Christine's voice was just like so tender and so soft. And the way that she sang was so different from Stevie kind of having this like bewitching, bellowing sound to her and Lindsay being a little bit more aggressive, a little bit, bit more avant-garde in his songwriting. And she was sort of like the kind of beating heart of the band. Like she was very controlled in the way that she sang. I think we have the statement, if we can pull it up, of what uh, Stevie Nicks mm -hmm. said. Yeah, their it. relationship was amazing. Yeah, let's yeah. talk about, if we can pull it up, but let's talk about what was their relationship like. They were best friends. I mean, especially with women in music, they want to pit women against each other and make it a competition for two women to be equal parts lead singers in a band together. Mm -hmm. They looked at each other as them against the world. Like, they were together against the forces of this male-dominated industry. And they wanted to help each other. They loved each other. Stevie wrote Sisters of the Moon about their relationship. And she just really, they always had the kindest, most beautiful things to say about each other. And just, there's a genuine love, no competition, no sort of sense Which of- Which is rare. Yeah. But that is so Stevie yeah. Nicks to- To write the letter. In yeah. cursive, her tribute yeah. to her and friend. It's like, how else would she do it? 
Can we give a <laughs> shout out though to the songwriters? So, yeah. I mean, people, you know, the the singers, right? Often yeah. get all the fame, but it's the people who write those songs. You may not recognize the title of the songs, yeah. but when it comes on the radio, if they play it, you will be humming it because you know it. That is that speaks to the importance of a great songwriter. Yeah, and Christine was a little bit more private. She had semi-retired in the late 90s for a little bit, so she wasn't touring with Fleetwood Mac for several years and has always kept her life kind of away from the spotlight in ways that Stevie and Lindsay have sort of been very active and been sort of continuing their drama for many years, but Christine sort of stepped away from a lot of it for a while. So people forget that there are so many of these songs that have continued to be a big part of their legacy that she wrote and continue to be some of the biggest hits that Fleetwood Mac ever had. Yeah, we're grateful for her. Well, real quick, we don't know the cause yet. They haven't released it. There's no cause of death that I've seen. It said a short illness. So um, She said she was in bad health in recent Yeah, yeah and Stevie said she had found out on Saturday. Oh. Thank you, Brittany. Yeah, thank you. We Thanks appreciate so it. Yeah. What an impact. Yeah. I also this morning, former President George W. Bush is denying there was any kind of intelligence of a domestic terror threat Ahead of the 9-11 tax, we have the newly declassified report. That's next. Plus this, uh, this is very interesting. LeBron James is now questioning reporters about why he has not been asked to react to a racially offensive photo of Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones after getting inundated with questions about Kyrie Irving. We'll tell you what's behind all of this straight ahead. That was great. I mean, talk about a sunrise. Look at that. Is that the Empire State Building we're looking at? It's a beautiful shot of, wow, New York City. Welcome back, everyone, to CNN This Morning. Here's what's coming up. LeBron James wonders why the media asks him about Kyrie Irving's scandal, but not a controversial picture of Jerry Jones. We'll talk about that. Plus, officials in Hawaii working out a plan right now in case lava gets too close to the interstate as the flow slows down and spreads out. And finally... Back home, the Iranian national soccer team greeted by large crowds. How were they received after losing their World Cup dreams? All right, also for the first time in two decades, this is truly fascinating. We are learning about what happened during a private Oval Office meeting between then-President George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and 10 members of the 9-11 Commission, where they got to ask them basically anything they wanted about what happened leading up to those attacks. CNN's Tom Foreman has more. Yeah, this really is a fascinating document when you look at it. Secret until recently, like a time capsule that steps out and says, what did they know leading up to this attack? And could that have utterly changed everything that happened in the world since then? Out of the confusion following the 9-11 attack came key questions. Did then-President George W. Bush and his team see it coming? And could they have stopped it? Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. The recently declassified report from April 2004 shows him pushing back firmly against that whole idea. No one said there was a problem domestically. The threat was overseas. That's what the report says Bush told members of the 9-11 Commission during an extraordinary question-and-answer session that lasted more than three hours about his reaction to the attack and his administration's intelligence gathering. The report, which is not an official transcript, summarizes his explanations. We were aware that bin Laden had sympathizers in the United States prior to the attack, but there was no actionable intelligence on such a threat, not one. 
when a commissioner noted there was intelligence about specific attacks being planned, Bush repeated, overseas. We all understood bin Laden's attempt to strike the homeland. What's more, the report says when asked about intelligence reports of domestic threats, Bush replied, if they came in and said we found a cell, his, Bush's action would have been destroy it. In another section, a commissioner pushes the then president to explain his reaction to an intelligence report just a month before 9-11 entitled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S., The president said since he was aware that al-Qaeda agents were being tracked in America, he had asked for it, that report, and it didn't say anything about a specific attack. In this meeting in the Oval Office, he made clear that, yes, they could see dots of information all over the place ahead of time, but even the best intelligence officers in the world couldn't connect them into a constellation that warned of this specific event in a way that they might be able to prevent it. In the end, it is clear in this document that Bush does say, I had the responsibility, but he clearly sees that as something different than having the blame. Caitlin? Yeah, and it's so rare to get a look inside something like this. Clearly, we have it. It's quite a read. Yeah, for two decades. Definitely worth the read. Tom Foreman, thank you. You're welcome. Up next this morning, we're going to talk about something LeBron James said to reporters last night about questions that he's being asked about one figure in sports, but not another. Also this. I felt like I lost control of my life. That was one brave demonstrator speaking to CNN's Selena Wang in disguise as Chinese police crack down, continue to crack down on protests. That interview, you don't want to miss it. It's straight ahead. You know what time it is? It's time for Sports in the Morning. LeBron James calling out reporters, NBA superstars, saying that there is a double standard when it comes to how the media cover the controversy surrounding Kyrie Irving's tweet support, supporting a documentary uh, deemed to be anti-Semitic and the way the media cover the photo that has emerged of Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones among the crowd of white students attempting to block black students from entering the doors of North Little Rock High School. This was in 1957. Listen to this. I got one question for you guys before you guys leave. I was thinking when I was on my way over here, I was wondering why I haven't gotten a question from you guys about the Jerry Jones photo. But when the Kyrie thing was going on, you guys were quick to ask us questions about that. Um, Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And I don't even want you guys to say nothing. When I watched Kyrie talk and he says, I know who I am, but I want to keep the same energy when we're talking about my people and the things that we've been through. And that Jerry Jones photo is one of those moments that our people, black people, have been through in America. And I feel like as a black man, as a black athlete, as someone with power and a platform when we do something wrong or or something that people don't agree with it's on every single tabloid every single news coverage it's on the bottom ticker it's asked about every single day 
but it seems like to me that the whole Jerry Jones situation photo, and I know it was years and years ago, and we all make mistakes. I get it. But it seemed like it's just been buried under, like, oh, it happened. Okay, we just, we just move on. And I was just kind of disappointed that I haven't received that question from you guys. Wow, very powerful. There he is, Coy Wires here to weigh in on this. Coy, listen, does he have a point? He's saying there's a double standard. What do you think? Well, Don, I think it's clear that LeBron feels that Jerry Jones perhaps didn't receive the level of criticism or wasn't as held as accountable as perhaps he should have been. But I also want to, it's important to note, Don, that LeBron James is not condoning what Kyrie Irving did. He himself said that I hope Kyrie Irving understands the hurt that he caused to a lot of people. But his decision in LeBron bringing up this topic unprovoked in the middle of a press conference, it's a microcosm of the hurt that many black athletes feel. Um, that it's long been the case that many black athletes, teammates of mine, I know I can say that they believe that sometimes they don't receive the same, le- they, uh, they receive a higher level of criticism uh, and harshness that, than perhaps their white counterparts do. I do want to throw a soundbite here, Don, to Jerry Jones when he was asked about this uh, photo that came up. Uh, here's what Jerry Jones had to say. Mm-hmm. That was, uh, uh, gosh, uh, 60, 65 years ago, and uh, a curious kid. I didn't know at the time the uh, monumental uh, 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 event, really, that was, that was going on. And uh, uh, I'm sure glad that uh, uh, we're a long way from that. Now, Don, I do also want to point out that this is not the first time that LeBron has mentioned the Cowboys in recent, just last month, actually, on a podcast. He said that, you know, LeBron, who was a longtime Dallas Cowboys fan, he said that he stopped being a Cowboys fan back during the time when players were kneeling, when Colin Kaepernick was kneeling. And, and LeBron said that people in the front office of the Cowboys organization were saying that any players who would do that would no longer be part of the organization. Of course, Jerry Jones said that his players would have to toe the line. He has since softened his stance in regard to that, Jerry Jones has, but it's clear that LeBron, did, this did not sit well with him feeling Jerry Jones not receiving the same level of criticism, maybe not being held as accountable as he should have. Kyrie Irving, he was penalized five games, penalty without pay. He was dropped by Nike. And so you can see that's his former teammate. He, this is not sitting well with him, especially when these reporters uh, are in front of him every day and they had the opportunity to ask LeBron about it when they did not. Listen, Coy, I've been making a very similar point that there are a lot of people, whether you agree with Kyrie Irving or not, but there are a lot of people who feel the same way that LeBron James does. LeBron just has the courage and the platform to be able to say that, um, and he's not concerned about the outcome. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think this is very important to him. We know that race uh, issues are very important to him, and he knows uh, the power he possesses. He understands the platform, those microphones that are in his face. Um, this is a point he, he, he felt passionately about, and I don't think it's the last we've heard from him in regards to this, Don. So to your point, yes, he, he's not afraid to stand up and, and say something that he feels needs to be said. Coy, thank you very much. You got it. Uh, I appreciate it. You know, guys, this is something that we have been talking about a lot. We did this, um, talking about this story a lot. And listen, LeBron is, is very powerful, and he knows, as Coy said, he knows the power um, that he has. But, I mean, if you look at Jerry Jones, the influence that he has um, in coaching, and he says, look, I should have I done better, I can do better, but arguably he has more power than Kyrie Irving when it comes to making a difference 
in society. Hiring black head coaches. Go on. Changing the league. We had, you know, the writer who broke this story on from the Washington Post last week. And the fact that when she talked to him, and it's good that that Jones talked to the reporter, but Caitlin, I mean, you know so much about football. Like the fact that Jerry Jones said, essentially, I know I could do better. And a lot of people look at him and say, you're, you know, owning the Cowboys means that the change you make could change the league for the better when it comes to diversity. They both have huge platforms. I mean, Kyrie Irving is incredibly popular. He has a a ton of followers, you know, and I think it's interesting that LeBron James made that point though. And I think it kind of caught maybe some of the reporters off guard in the room, but I think it's an important point to make and to be thoughtful about. Sorry, I I know we have to go to break, but I just think the, the World Cup, is not just about soccer at all. It's about yep. human rights issues yep. and humanity. Just rights, right? Basketball, football, sports is so much more than the game. And they have these huge platforms and good for LeBron James That's for saying I'm that. Sure. People are sh- so short-sighted when they... You remember the whole <clears throat> shut up and dribble? I wasn't going to say it, but yes. Because we've all, changes in culture and society have always been made through sports. Right. Yeah. If you, you know, that's a really good point. Always been made through sports, and 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 you know what? People find it sometimes more palatable because they care mm. about sports so much, and you're in in such close confines. It's like the military, right? You that's have to be with people who are different than you. So. All right. Okay. We'll see what happened. Wait till you see this story. When Caitlin sent it to me, my jaw was on the ground. <laughs> you don't want to hear what I said. Oh, you don't want to hear what Don said. Uh, here's what happened when a reporter was asked two world leaders, two prime ministers about their age. That's ahead. Also this. This is the kind of commitment to your craft that I'm talking about. Actor Joe Pesci says that scene from Home Alone 2 quite literally set his head on fire. Oh my gosh. No, like, stunt double. Nothing. That's, you know, you gotta... But he said the heavy lifting stuff that had people... This morning, lava is spewing from the world's largest active volcano, creeping toward the main highway on the big island of Hawaii. Officials say they have a plan to try to shut down that interstate. If the lava gets too close, they are urging people to be prepared. As we talk about Hawaii, twin volcanoes are also erupting in Alaska. Our Jennifer Gray joins us now with more. Remember when those volcanoes erupted a few years ago and it sent so much ash, people literally couldn't fly across the Atlantic Ocean? Yes, I remember that. And that happens sometimes uh, when you have these big explosive eruptions. This one is more of a problem of convenience across the Big Island because lava is still flowing out of this volcano. Uh, Mauna Loa is huge. It takes up over half of the island of Hawaii, of the Big Island, I should say. But uh, the problem is the flow is going to interrupt one of the main cut throughs through the island to get from one side to the other. So it's, it's more of a convenience thing. So here is the road that the lava is getting ever so close to. Uh, Officials say it's about three and a half miles away. It could reach the road in only about two days time. And so what's going to happen? Are people going to have to go either all the way around uh, the north side or all the way around the south side? So if this gets closer, they're going to have to shut that road down, guys, and people are going to have to go all the way around. Yikes. Jennifer Gray, thank you. Thanks. Ahead, an emotional memorial for those four murdered Idaho students as we learn that the attacks may not have been targeted as we initially heard from the authorities. Also this morning, this. Oh. Oh. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. So difficult to watch. This is caught on camera the moment a base jumper slammed into a cliff. 
in Moab, Utah. They lived. We'll tell you more. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I felt like I lost control of my life. Oh, boy. Uh, We're going to talk about that story in just a moment. Good morning. We're so glad that you could join us here uh, on CNN this morning. You know what I like about Thursdays? What? One step closer to Friday. Friday, Junior. You don't want to be with us all weekend? Uh, What is wrong with you? uh, No. (laughs) You This interview that that we just teased is so interesting. And I think it's something we've been talking about all week. Well, we've been talking about it all week, and and there have been protests all week, and there are going to continue to be protests. Caitlin was just talking about this one brave Chinese protester that you just saw there. She was speaking out to CNN's Selena Wang, as you can see. She's in disguise. She's dealing detailing the, the conditions uh, in China, and she's dealing with all of those crackdowns. An incredible interview. That is straight ahead. Also, police in Idaho backtracking weeks after the murder of four college students. First, they said it looked like the students were targeted. Now they are clarifying their story. Also this morning, Elon Musk luring Republicans into a fight with Apple. If he is, it appears to be working. First this morning, though, it has been more than two weeks since four Idaho college students were found murdered. Police in the college town of Moscow, Idaho, as Poppy was saying, have said all along that they believe this was a targeted targeted attack. Now they're clarifying that statement, though, creating a little bit of confusion, a lot of confusion, actually, as students and residents have held a candlelight memorial service last night. You can see all the people who were there. As police were also talking as this was going on about a miscommunication they had with the county prosecutor's office. CNN's Veronica Miracle is live this morning near Moscow, Idaho. And Veronica, this has been the big question that has been plaguing this, which is what police are saying, what they aren't saying, and what we still do not know about what happened here. That's right, Caitlin. And a lot of this confusion in the last 12 hours seems to be around the notion that two or one of the specific roommates were specifically targeted. I'm going to read just part of their statement that they released last night. Detectives do not currently know if the residents or any occupants were specifically targeted, but continue to investigate. Police haven't answered our questions about this confusion, kind of the going back and forth. But I think here in the community, all that really matters is that a suspect still has hasn't been arrested. The unsolved fatal stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students leaves the Moscow community with grave uncertainty and little information more than two weeks after the attack. You're just going to have to love each other. You guys are just going to have to hug each other. The university held a vigil Wednesday where the family spoke about their loss. She was just such a happy, just such a great kid, such a perfect little baby and so just smart and funny and beautiful. That that's the most important message that we have for you and your families is to make sure that you spend as much time as possible with those people because time is precious and it's something you can't get back. Victims Kaylee Gonsalves and Madison Mogan were childhood friends. Gonsalves' dad spoke about how they met. Sixth grade, they just found each other and every day they did homework together, they came to our house together, they shared everything. And in the end, they died together in the same room, in the same bed. And it's, it's a shame and it hurts. But the beauty of the two 
always being together is something that will will it comforts us it lets us know that they were with their their best friends in the whole world a spokesperson for the Moscow Police Department told Fox News they are starting to receive forensic testing results related to the investigation. This comes as police are now clarifying previous statements made by the Latah County Prosecutor's Office that said the murders were targeted and isolated. It's unclear why the police's latest statement says detectives do not currently know if the victims were targeted, as several previous on-the-record statements and on-camera comments have specifically cited this incident as a targeted attack. Investigators have retraced the victim's whereabouts on the night of the murder and combed through the off-campus house where the four lived in, but still have not named a suspect. On Tuesday, authorities removed cars from the crime scene. The Idaho State Police has provided heightened security for the campus and the community, given the mounting fears a murderer is still at large. I thought it would make me feel safer, but it doesn't because it just reminds me that there's still someone out there. Yes, certainly here in the community, everywhere you go, there is an increased security presence. Idaho State Police everywhere just trying to make the community feel safe. Caitlin. Yeah, you can see why they don't. Veronica, thank you for that report. Let's discuss now. I want to bring in CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, Mr. John Miller. Good morning to you. Morning, this story Don. is fascinating in the sense that this is a small town, right? And they don't have anyone yet. Initially, they said that they didn't think it was a threat to the public. And now they're saying that it possibly is a threat to the public. What do you make of all this? Well, I think they're getting tied up in semantics, which is a symptom of not having a break in the case that they can talk about that's newsworthy. So people are going back, trying to interpret statements word by word. I think what you have here is uh, you're now going into the third week of the case. Um, that's, that means there's been enough time for DNA results and other things to come back. Of course, what they're looking for there is who are the known contributors, the victims and people who lived in the house. Where is that unknown contributor? Um, they take the unknown DNA, they put it in the CODIS system with the FBI. That gives them two things. One, everybody who was arrested on a felony who supplied DNA. So that's a good start. Is there an unknown contributor that rings in CODIS? But second, it gives them all the DNA that's been in the system that was recovered at other crime scenes that isn't identified. So if it doesn't lead them to a person, it can lead them to another crime scene. So all those wheels are turning now, and those clues are going to be coming in and run down. So they have said nothing about a suspect. Does that mean they don't know anything about a suspect? Does that mean they're just not ready to say it yet? So that's a great question. Yesterday they said, we have not named a suspect, to clarify. But that doesn't mean there hasn't been a suspect. They have been through a handful of suspects that have risen and fallen as their alibis have checked out, and they'll go through more. But are the kids safe? So Every, all those college students. So, so let's talk about yes, but no. Uh. I mean, there's an increased police presence. Um, the state police is now patrolling the campus and the town along with local authorities. But, you know, until we knew until we know the, the who and the what and the why, it's hard to say this targeted discussion, targeted or not targeted, um, has some meaning. Whoever went to that house came there deliberately. It appears with the intent to kill everyone inside, armed with a particular weapon that they probably brought for that particular purpose. Um, were they targeting the house? Were they targeting an individual inside? Um, or was it, was it always just going to be everybody? That's what they're struggling in the, in the Y department. So the more random this is, 
If it's a drifter who said, I'm going to go in that house and kill everybody, the less everybody's safe. If it's something to do with one or more of those people, then it's contained. But until they either know that answer or tell us that answer, it's hard to assure everybody everything's safe. Yeah, no one's been arrested. Yeah, and we're left to wonder. Yeah. Thank you very much, John Miller. Appreciate it. This morning, the Biden administration is considering dramatically expanding the U.S. military training provided to Ukrainian forces. And this proposal includes training much larger groups of Ukrainian soldiers in more sophisticated battlefield tactics. Let's go to our Katie Bolillis, who has more on this reporting. Can we, we hear a lot about U.S. training Ukrainian forces, but it seems like this time is different. How so? Yeah, Poppy, this is potentially a pretty significant expansion of the both the number of Ukrainians that the United States is training and the kind of training that they're providing. Up until now, the U.S. has trained a few thousand Ukrainian troops, mostly in small groups and mostly on how to use specific weapon systems. Under this new proposal that the Biden administration is considering, the United States would train up to 2,400 Ukrainian soldiers a month in larger groups on how to perform more sophisticated battlefield maneuvers. What's known in the military as combined arms training. So what does that mean? It means that the United States would be potentially training Ukraine to better integrate their infantry maneuvers with their artillery support, to better perform command and control and logistics as part of larger, more complex military operations. Now, Poppy, it is important to note that this proposal is still an interagency review. It hasn't been approved yet, but we are told by our sources that this is a pretty serious consideration as the Biden administration looks towards how to best set up Ukraine for success in this fight against Russia Mm -hmm. in the long run. Yeah, for sure. Great reporting, Katie Bolillis. Thank you. Thanks, Bobby. All right, this week we have been talking about those unprecedented protests that you have seen erupting across, across China, some of them calling for the President Xi Jinping to step down. That had to do with those severe COVID restrictions that were driving a lot of this. They angered the nation after one apartment fire. But now there's been a sweeping crackdown on the demonstrators. That is adding to the misery, to the frustration that we have seen. CNN's Selena Wang is live in Beijing this morning. And Selena, what I find so amazing about this is that you spoke to one of those protesters. Obviously, they wanted to be disguised because the authorities have been going to these people's homes, questioning them, talking to them about this. What did this person have to tell you? Yeah, Caitlin, it is so hard to get anybody to speak on camera in China, let alone on a sensitive topic like this. And this person was at the same protest I had reported from, and they explained to me that it was such an incredible, cathartic, emotional release for people after years of this zero COVID policy. It was a way to release that pent-up anger. And this was a protester's explanation for why so many people were willing to put their lives on the line just to speak out. I felt like I lost control of my life because of this COVID policy. We are limited physically, and now we're limited mentally. We are forbidden to express our ideas. For me, first thing first, I want this zero COVID policy gone. And if we have more freedom of speech and freedom of press, of course, that would be great. What do you think you guys achieved by participating in that protest? If you don't demonstrate, if you don't show them your voice, your idea, they will never know. Silence will not protect you. 
You'll notice that we blurred the person's face. I also did this interview in a car in order to avoid tracking from authorities because police, they've been calling and visiting the homes of some protesters, even randomly stopping some people in the streets of Shanghai to check their phones. Protesters say police are looking for VPNs needed to use banned apps like Twitter or Telegram, which some of these protesters have been using to communicate. Police have also been flooding key protest sites, so protesters are finding it very hard to find a way to continue to gather. What about not just gathering, but also even talking? Because there's so much censorship in China. How do people communicate about what's actually going on in real time on the ground? Yeah, well, look, the goal of authorities is to make it as if none of this ever happened. We've seen censorship go into overdrive to scrub any evidence of these protests online. But this protester said, look, that's to be expected of the Communist Party. And that's why so many people at these demonstrators were holding up these white pieces of paper. Take a listen to what this person had to say. That white piece of paper rep actually represents the censorship and uh, all the deleted contents. That white paper is everything that we want to say. And you cannot arrest us for just holding a white paper. A lot of the protesters in Beijing, like this person, were young, but they were still born before Facebook, Google and YouTube were banned in China. So despite the propaganda and what this person called, quote, brainwashing, they remember what a more open China looked like. But most of them, they do realize it is too dangerous and unrealistic to call for Xi Jinping to step down. But at the very least, what they want is their old life back when their lives weren't controlled by these lockdowns, quarantines and mass testing, Caitlin. Yeah, that blank sheet of paper says so much. Selena Wang, thank you. So it appears Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, has settled his dispute with Apple and that it was all built on a conspiracy. Musk sharing that he spoke with Apple CEO Tim Cook saying this, good conversation. Among other things, we resolved the misunderstanding about Twitter potentially being removed from the App Store. Tim was clear that Apple never considered doing so. That is a far different tune than Musk had been singing earlier this week. When, in a flurry of tweets, he claimed that the company had threatened to pull Twitter from its app store and even questioned Apple's commitment to free speech. Thing is, Republicans started to fall in line around those attacks. Watch this. He's uh, providing free speech. And so if Apple responds to that uh, by nuking them from, from the app store, you know, I think that that would be a huge, huge mistake. And it would be a really raw exercise of monopolistic power that I think would merit a response uh, from, from the United States Congress. Ohio Senator-elect J.D. Vance echoed that, calling it a monopoly power that no civilized country should allow. And then there's Senator Tom Cotton calling a potential move ill-advised. And Senator Mike Lee suggested it calls for legislation, saying it's unacceptable. Colorado Congressman Ken Buck took that idea a step further, suggesting a time frame for legislative action, tweeting this. This is why we need to end the App Store duopoly before the end of this year. No one should have this kind of market power. Again, by Musk's own admission, it was never a thing. It is not just Republican leadership taking Apple to task this morning. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg has been doing it for a long time. And yesterday he spoke out again against the company's policies around the App Store. Listen to this. Apple has sort of singled themselves out as the only company that is trying to control um, like unilaterally what what apps get on a device. And I, I don't think that's a sustainable or good place to be.
it is problematic for, for one company to be able to control what, what kind of app experiences get on the device. All right, let's bring in Sarah Fisher, CNN media analyst and media reporter at Axios. Sarah, it's great to have you. I have so many thoughts on this. I'm sure Zuckerberg loves this moment because, you know, the move that Apple made has really impacted them. But you it's not just them. I thought it was interesting. Spotify CEO Daniel Eck came out yesterday and said the same thing. I think it's problematic. One company controls what happens on a device here. Um, but the free speech argument seems to be missing the point. This isn't government quashing speech. This is, you know, a private company making a decision about something they think might violate their rules. That's exactly right. And I think part of the kerfuffle between Elon Musk and Apple is that Apple has so many different apps that are coming through to its app store. It probably sends boilerplate type of emails out to different developers, just reminding them, hey, here are our policies. You have to adhere to them or else you risk being removed. You know, it makes sense that a company like Apple would do that because they want to do what's best for the consumer. And if they have just any app that's, you know, potentially has security concerns or really bad content moderation problems, things like illegal content or child pornography, they're going to want to make sure that's not part of their app store. And so I think this is less of a free speech issue as much as it is just a miscommunication and misunderstanding between Musk yeah. and Apple. I just have one quick follow-up. Is that, so all these, DeSantis made it, a lot of Republican lawmakers, some Democrats keep making this free speech argument. Is that because it's politically convenient and they think it resonates? It just seems to be totally missing the point. I think so. I also think that cracking down on big tech is a politically convenient issue. And for a long time, we saw these lawmakers going after Meta, saying that, you know, Meta, as well as Twitter, was censoring Republicans. Now they're going after Apple, saying that Apple is doing its job to censor, you know, or a potential, uh, you know, an app that's governed by somebody who now says that they're a Republican. And so I do think that this is very politically convenient. There's also this other weird issue in that Apple has ties to China. And right now, with the protests that are happening in China, some of those lawmakers that Don listed out are also using this fight as an opportunity to speak out about Apple's dominance there. So you saw Ron DeSantis not only criticizing Apple for these app store policies, but also using this moment where you have a lot of momentum against the Apple fight to target Apple for China, which I thought was very interesting. Well, and also because this is such an issue on Capitol Hill, which is why this matters. It's not just, you know, Ron DeSantis tweeting about it. This is actually an issue that Tim Cook has to deal with on Capitol Hill when it comes to these antitrust things. And Tim and Mark Zuckerberg weighing in on this and basically agreeing with Elon Musk is what stood out to me. And I guess the question is, do they have a point when they're talking about the fees that the App Store and the Apple Store takes from them? This is hotly debated. Uh, Poppy mentioned that Spotify weighed in yesterday. Epic Games has a lawsuit against Apple about this. Essentially, if you were to compare Apple's policies to some of the other big tech companies, let's say Google and its Play Store, or maybe even Microsoft and Windows, they're very different. You know, Google takes a smaller cut of fees that are transacted within the the Google Play Store than Apple does. You know, the other sort of big question here is that when it comes to Apple, Apple argues this is good for the consumer that we take the fee. I think a lot of people are wondering, is that actually true? And to your point, you know, Tim Cook, there are reports that he was on Capitol Hill trying to debate this and weigh this out. I don't think this argument's going to go anywhere anytime soon. I think it's going to continue to put a lot more pressure on Apple for the foreseeable future. I've got to ask you, I was looking, um, Sarah, quickly about the list of all the folks who have left, but I know the latest celebrity or big name to leave is um, Jim Carrey. To leave Twitter. To leave Twitter. Uh, is Jim Carrey announcing this week that he's uh, he's leaving? Whoopi Goldberg left, and there are a couple of other big names who've left. Is this is this a fad or is it uh, a, a trend? 
this always comes in waves. You know, Ariana Grande left Twitter. She came back to Twitter at the time. You know, they, she said it was toxic and that it's not toxic. I do think you're going to have a lot more people in this wave because of Elon Musk is such a polarizing person. But I don't think that this is necessarily the rule. I think this is more the exception. If you even take a look, you know, third party stats have said that engagement with Twitter has increased. Active users on Twitter has increased. I think high profile celebrities might, you know, want to make a stand against what Elon Musk is doing and quit. But I don't think that this is going to be a large scale trend where we see massive amounts of users drop away from the app. I was just fine. My trusty producer, I was looking on my phone, but gave Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Trent Reznor, Shonda Rhimes, uh, and others, Jim Carrey. So there you go. Thank you, Sarah. Making us smarter every morning. All right. The U.S. women's team, national team, is cashing out on the men's team's success in the 2022 World Cup. So far, they are earning more than they did actually in their last two tournaments, as you know, both of which they won. Here with this morning's number is CNN's senior data reporter, Harry Enten. Harry, what is the payout looking like and what does this mean that they are cashing in on this success? Explain this to us. Yeah, it could be somewhat confusing. So let's sort of just dive into the numbers a little bit first to sort of explain what's going on. So as you were hinting at, Caitlin, look, this is the U.S. Women's National Team World Cup payout. For the U.S. men advancing to the round of 16 in 2022, the team has gotten $6.5 million. That will climb higher that will climb higher if the men advance even further. Now compare that to the U.S. women winning the tournament in 2019. The U.S. women's team won $4 million. So that can seem to be somewhat confusing. So what exactly is going on here? Well, there was a 2022 agreement which essentially said that the U.S. men's and women's team, the national teams would split the World Cup prize money evenly that either team won. So they'd split the money evenly that either team won. This, of course, means that, yes, the women are getting money from the men's wins, but going forward, the men will also get money from the women's wins. So why is it, though, that the women's team is getting more money from the men's wins than they did from their own, despite the fact that the women have advanced further? Well, it all comes down to how much money each of these World Cups are making. The simple fact of the matter is is that the men's tournament makes more money. So the men's 2020 World Cup total prize money is $440 million dollars, Compare that to the women's 2019 World Cup total prize money. It's just $30 million. So essentially, the women get to split a larger part of a much larger pie. That is what's going on here. But Harry, the women's team has been more successful than the men's team. It's been far more successful. So just because something makes more money doesn't necessarily mean it's necessarily better, right? So if we look historically speaking, the women's World Cup titles, they have won four since 1991. The men's World Cup titles, they've won zero, zero since 1930. So yes, the men's, are, men's tournament brings in more money. But when it comes to the U.S., I'd make the argument that the women's, the women's team is far more responsible for the boost in popularity. And All right, I would I make think- the exact opposite argument. I know everyone's going to hate me. Go ahead. Dan. But the men's team makes more money. Hey, if they make more money, then they should get more here's money. Why is the, the men's team-, team? The men's team makes more money because, you know men, because people are more interested but in But guess who takes... Part of blame. I have a big issue with this, guys. WNBA, same things happening to them. Until media, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Until big media companies, big tech companies, advertisers invest and put them on their airwaves more and allow people, no, 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 and allow people to see it more and gain more fans, then you will push toward more equality. But if they are blocked in so many ways and not invested in as much, they don't even have a. I know you're not, but they don't even have a shot. In a, in a family of all women. I understand what you're saying. But not everybody, honestly, has the same skill. 
Not everybody has the same interest in the sport. I think the women should be paid more. I do. But if the but men... The, yeah, you're right that not everyone has the same skills because yeah. the women are better skilled. Well, the women are better skilled against Mind other job. women. But if the women played the men, Why? they wouldn't what? be winning the way that what? they win. Okay, I'm not going right? to get into... So, I'm not I'm even going to get into that argument. I'm just saying, if the sport makes more money, that means there's more why money available. Why does it make more money? Because people are more interested in no, this. Because they they see it, when right? I go it's to a sports a bar, guys, am I wrong? You guys don't want to say anything. I will just. When I go to a sports bar, if there is a women's basketball game on, I'm just being honest. Which is on air less. People will say, literally you flip it to the guys? I don't want to watch this. I'm just telling you. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just speaking... What, what? Harry, what okay. were you going to say? And so you cannot make people become interested in something that they are not but interested in. But you have in. to show it to them. Go ahead. Yeah, no, the Harry only thing I would say is you can't make people interested in things that they aren't. But look at the w young women who are participating in high school soccer. Those they should get paid more money. Tremendously. I'm yes, not saying I, I, that they shouldn't get, get paid more money. But I would just say in terms of fan base, here in the United States, the women's fan base has been climbing ever so higher, at least if you look at the participation numbers. You're making my point. Soccer. So I'm saying they should get paid more money. But if there's more interest in the men's and more money is coming in in the men's sports, those men are entitled to that more money. But I don't it's think just, you're looking at the root of the issue, which is why are people more interested in the men's sports? Because it's been because historically... Because it's more interesting to watch. No, no, oh, I'll, 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 you got, hold on, hold on. Come back. I'm come kidding. Back. I, that was a joke. No, I didn't no, mean that. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I did not I will tell you, I find nothing more boring than watching these men's U.S. games. These The women, if you watch the women, that's so exciting. You go back to 1999. I remember I was coming back on the Jersey Turnpike when the women won that 1999 World Cup tournament. That was so exciting. The fact of the matter is just because something makes more money, it doesn't necessarily make it a better product. It is product. exciting. The and women's product you, is significantly exciting. better than the United It is States exciting. I'm right. not saying it's that it's fact. not more interesting to watch. We're that was just a that. joke. But there's more interest in the men simply because it is what it is. Wait, wait. I, mean, I, don't, wait. I don't. Do you want to finish your point or you want to move no, on? No, she's trying to move on. I'm talking to Caitlin. I actually would like to move on because Let's I think on. we have a lot of news to get <laughs> Let's to. Let's get to the news. This is a very, this is a very important conversation, I think. It's, you know, it's about the dollars. No, but it's about the historical aspect of why men dominated sports and why people paid more attention and invested are, more in that. And there's now, more money in the men's sport. It is what it is. But that's the problem. That's what we're saying. <laughs> All right, coming up, this. <laughs> What was important to you as you were in there casting your ballot? We're talking to Georgia voters about what's on their minds ahead of next week's crucial Senate runoff election. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Right, this morning, only a few days left in Georgia's Senate runoff. President Obama will be there today to campaign alongside the incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. This is the eve of the final day of early voting, where voter turnout over the last few days has been setting records. I was in Georgia on Monday. I spoke with some of the Georgia voters who were casting those votes early to talk about what was at the top of their minds. What were they thinking about when they went to the ballot box? I also had a chance to speak with Senator Warnock himself. With days left in Georgia's high-stakes Senate race, voters are swarming polling locations and shattering early voting records. What was important to you as you were in there casting your ballot? Well, the important thing is the economy. I am concerned about women's rights, um, civil rights. 
More than one million Georgians have already voted, surpassing early turnout from past presidential elections as voters decide between incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. This race is about Georgia. This race is about who is going to represent 11 million people. Neither candidate reached the 50 percent threshold in November, throwing Georgia into its second Senate runoff election since January 2021. And the outcome this time will determine whether Democrats have 50 Senate seats or 51. The stakes couldn't be higher. Uh, and the contrast between me and my opponent could not be more obvious. It is time we get this right. And the way we get it right, by putting me in the Senate, because I'm not going to dance and sing for nobody. I never have and never will. Both Warnock and Walker are courting the more than 200,000 Georgians who voted for Republican Governor Brian Kemp, but not Walker, whose campaign has been plagued by scandals, including allegations that he paid for abortions despite opposing the procedure. You saw something that doesn't happen in Georgia. These split ticket voters, I think they can see the contrast. And I think we're going to see the results of that next week. While Kemp has endorsed Walker, Warnock is directly appealing to Kemp's voters with ads like this one. At the end of the day, I have to vote for someone that I can trust and that has integrity. And I don't believe that is Herschel Walker. One Georgian who voted for the Republican governor, but not the Republican Senate candidate, explained to CNN why. Just based on the character, the, the the interviews we've had, the type of stuff that Herschel Walker says, I'm of the opinion he'll say pretty much anything to get elected. Walker enjoys strong name recognition from his time as a Georgia Bulldog, but despite winning the Heisman Trophy in 1982, some voters say his accomplishments on the gridiron shouldn't matter at the polls. I'm a great fan of Herschel on the football field. He has shown me nothing that would lead me to believe he would be a, a competent senator. Two voters who are supporting Walker in Tuesday's runoff election say inflation and the economy were top of mind, but not former President Trump's endorsement of Walker. Was that a factor? No. no. And why not? Because the Republican Party is more than President Trump, okay? Yeah. We're not all mega people. That was the sentiment that I heard from other voters there on the ground in Georgia. We should note we did reach out to the Walker campaign to interview them, but they declined. What did you leave... Uh, feeling? Because you were there one week to the day before the election. Georgia voters are sick of runoffs. <laughs> they feel like they've been voting nonstop because, you know, they had that yeah. runoff the last time around with David Perdue, yeah. Kelly Leffler. That's what sent Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff to the Senate. They're That's like, just two years we've, been, ago. we've been voting a lot. We've been very exercising our right uh, quite often. Great piece. All right. A Buckingham Palace official quitting after questioning whether a black woman at the palace event was really British. We're going to talk about race and the royals. That's next. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up, two female prime ministers and one very sexist question from a reporter. How the leaders of Finland and New Zealand turn the tables on a member of the media. And in a new letter, a January 6th defendant charged with two felonies asking the court for leniency, writing in part, quote, I let one man's rhetoric and lies bring me to a place that couldn't be more far from reality. And finally, French President Emmanuel Macron set to arrive at the White House this morning. We'll bring that to you live right here on CNN. 
An honorary member of the Buckingham Palace of Buckingham Palace has resigned and apologized after questioning whether a black British woman was really British at a royal charity event earlier this week. Buckingham Palace did not name the senior official, but released a statement saying the individual would like to apologize and is stepping aside. The British media has identified the woman as Lady Susan Hussey. She served as lady-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth for more than 60 years and is Prince William's godmother. She's also the widow of a former chairman of the BBC's Board of Governors and was portrayed in the latest season of the Netflix show The Crown. It has also been reported that she was charged with helping Meghan Markle adjust to royal life, how to be a royal, basically. So this is just the latest incident involving the royals and race. During a trip to Jamaica, this was back in March, Prince William and Kate were accused of reinforcing colonial values. Uh, their decision to hold a parade wrapped in royal linen riding in, a, this, in the same Land Rover that the Queen used during a 1962 visit was viewed as tone deaf. The Guardian published archived photos or archived papers in June of 2021, which revealed that minority immigrants and foreigners were banned from holding certain positions at Buckingham Palace until at least the late 1960s. And Meghan and Harry cited racism as one of the top reasons why they decided to leave their role as royals. Remember what they told Oprah about what an unnamed member of the royal family had to say about their first child's skin tone. Watch. So we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security. He's not going to be given a title. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. There is a conversation. Hold up. Hold up. There's Stop several right now. There are several conversations. There's a about conversation it. with you. With Harry. About how dark your baby is going to be potentially, and what that would mean or look like. Ooh. Well, joining me now is Trisha Goddard. She's a CNN contributor and host of The Week with Trisha Goddard. And Emily Nash, a CNN royal commentator and a royal editor at Hello Magazine. Hello to both of you. She's covering the royal visit, by the way, uh, Emily, from Boston. So I appreciate both of you joining us. Trisha, here we go again. Yes. Here talking about this. Remember, we talked about it during the wedding. We talked about it during the Queen's funeral. This is some deep stuff. And so I'm wondering... Um, what, what does this mean? Do you know the person who's in, involved um, in Gozi this? Gozi Falani, yes. Gozi Falani. Yes, she, she's done some amazing work. And I think, to me, this, this whole event was about women uh, and domestic violence. So if somebody asks you where you're from, you tell them the organisation where you're from. But this was sustained questioning. Um, and a lot of us have been through that. You know, people are in, in the UK maybe 20, 30 years ago would say, where are you from? And I'd say, sorry, um, no, where are you really from? I was born in Hackney. Now, where are you really from? You know, and I thought, my God, hasn't this conversation ever stopped? So you're, you weren't surprised at all? No, no, I was shocked, but not surprised. And, and Ngozi Falani is a credible figure. Yeah, yeah, oh gosh, she is. She's done some amazing work for women in domestic violence situations in the Afro-Caribbean uh, area. And remember, this, this is what this function was all about. Yeah. Uh, Emily, talk to me about Lady Hussey, please. She is Prince William's grandmother, um, what's your take on this? Are you super godmother? Excuse me, godmother. Are you surprised by this? 
I am surprised and, you know, it's really shocking in terms of the high profile nature of the event for the Queen Consort. This was most meant to be a huge moment for her. It's completely overshadowed that. And of course, it's also really overshadowing what's going on in Boston this week. So the timing of it is, is terrible. But, um, you know, moreover, it's just inexcusable. And I think it's very interesting that the palace have been very quick to act mm. this time around. It's possibly a changing of the old guard. This might not have happened, I think, in the previous reign as quickly as it has done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, because uh, Charles and the Queen Consort has said that they want to modernize the royal family. Yeah, they want it to yeah. be more diverse and also limit the roles, the kind of roles um, that Hussey had as a lady-in-waiting. Go on. Absolutely, and, and, and um, I think with um, Harry and Meghan in the family as well and what they've done and also with the, um, you know, with, with William and Catherine, they are trying to move things forward. I think they recognize that earlier tour was tone deaf. They got very quick feedback. So this quick out-of-the-gate response from Kensington Palace is actually something very new. There was a denial when Meghan and Harry made their claims, right? And then they got a lot of guff in the British press and even the American press who were not believing their stories and basically saying, suck it up. Does this give credence to what Meghan and Harry have been saying? Well, it gives credence to people who didn't believe before. I mean, there still will be pushback in some areas of the British press. There still is pushback. Remember, we don't have as diverse a press as you have here in the United States. What does that mean? Well... (laughs) that a journalist in, in Britain can still use the phrase uppity when referring to Meghan and not understand the connotations. I mean, that wouldn't happen as much here. Uh, our newsrooms are almost exclusively white, apart from sports areas and what have you. So that, that in itself has problems with the reporting because I think a lot of the reporting about this has been overblown and even Gozi Filani has said the same thing. Yeah. There were, Emily, people didn't believe a lot of, of what Meghan and Harry said, especially about the threats made to, to them. They, Meghan spoke about it in her interview with Oprah. I want you to listen to it and then I'll get your response. So, I mean, I think there's a reason that these tabloids have holiday parties at the palace. They're hosted by the palace. The tabloids are. You know, there is a construct that's at play there. And because from the beginning of our relationship, they were so attacking and inciting so much racism, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it changed our, the risk level because it, went, it wasn't just catty gossip. It was bringing out a part of people that was racist in how it was charged. Mm-hmm. And that changed the threat, that changed the level of death threats, that mm-hmm. changed everything. So this is a new interview uh, now, Emily, with Britain's Channel 4. It, it aired on Tuesday. Neil Basu said that threats against Meghan were serious and credible enough that authorities had assigned teams to investigate them. He is a former counterterrorism police chief, and he is a former now. He's able to speak about it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's very shocking to hear about this. We've known for some time that there had been threats made against him. In fact, there have been people successfully prosecuted for making threats against Harry and Meghan. Um, And it comes, I'm afraid, partly with royal territory as well, because you do have people who become obsessed with members of the royal family, and occasionally these threats arise. But it's, it's easy to see that there has been this link, unfortunately, with Meghan's race. And she has, you know, been the target of some vile abuse. Absolutely. I've got it. Trisha, I'm going to give you the last word here. So what does this mean? I mean and how are people back 
Do you think in the UK, how are they reacting to this? Or I don't think there is... People of colour are not that shocked. People of colour are not that shocked. Remember one of the headlines that was first brought out about Meghan when she first joined the royal family was almost straight out of Compton. Mm -hmm. I mean, so we, we aren't surprised at it. Um, Sadly, I think things are going to change slowly. They are changing, but it's going to be a slow process. Listen, I remember, look, I have eaten a lot of crow uh, in my years <laughs> on Earth. And so you and I yes. talked about it during yes. the wedding. And you said, Don, this is not really going to change. Yeah, I said, yeah. yeah, but she may make a difference. Mm, no, no, no. no. It, it'll take a lot longer than just, and a lot more than just one person. Yeah. Emily, thank you. Safe travels to you. And thank you very much, Trisha. Appreciate you joining us. Thank Caitlin. you. All right, up next here on CNN This Morning, a January 6th defendant is now writing a letter asking for leniency because he says he believed former President Trump's lies. And the understatement of the year from the fallen crypto boss, Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, look, I, I've had a bad month. Um, this has not been any fun month for me. It spurred laughter in the audience, but we'll tell you what SBF said about the $32 billion company that plunged into bankruptcy basically overnight. Well, there's this. In a new letter, a January 6th defendant who has been charged with two felonies is asking a court for leniency... We'll tell you why with our Paula Reed. She joins us live from Washington this morning. I thought this letter was fascinating. It is fascinating, Poppy, and it's not the first time we've seen this. Remember, the Justice Department still has hundreds of outstanding January 6th cases, many of which are headed to sentencing, where some defendants have tried to express remorse. For example, in this letter, George Tenney, he's scheduled to be sentenced next week for his admitted role in the Capitol attack. And like many defendants before him, he is trying to shift blame onto former President Trump. Now, prosecutors allege that Tenney played a key role in exacerbating violence at the Capitol. He was the one who forced open the doors of the rotunda for the first time, allowing approximately 48 rioters to enter. Those rioters, of course, then fanned out throughout the Capitol, destroying property, assaulting police, threatening members of Congress. Well, Tenney has penned this letter to the judge, hoping for leniency, and in it, he takes responsibility for his actions, but he also places blame on Trump, writing, I let one man's rhetoric and lies bring me to a place that couldn't be more far from reality. He goes on to say, I did get caught up in the lies and made up news going around from politicians and celebrities in child sex rings, corruption allegations, supposed communism to election fraud. What do you think? I mean, I suppose is this I don't know if it's a bench trial or a jury, ju up to a judge or a jury trial, but I mean, it's one strategy. You think it'll work? You're a lawyer. You're uh, a lawyer. I, I, I do. I do not. I'm going to wipe out that dusty law license and tell you it, it's unlikely. And I say that based on our previous reporting, which is that judges and juries have not been sympathetic to these arguments. Look, some judges have agreed. Yes, Trump bears some responsibility, but they aren't allowing defendants to successfully argue he made me do it. And government prosecutors here, they're seeking a four year prison sentence after he pleaded guilty to civil disorder and obstruction of an official proceeding. He's scheduled to be sentenced next Monday. But no, I I don't think this is successfully going to keep him out of prison. We'll see. It's one tactic. Uh, but it does speak to a broader, more serious issue of, you know, words matter when you're the president yes. and leaders. Thank you, Paula. Caitlin. All right. Finland's Sana Marin made history this week as the first Finnish prime minister to visit New Zealand. She there joined New Zealand's prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, for a news conference yesterday. 
And there was a moment that I really can't even sum it up. You just have to watch it. A lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because, you know, you're similar in age and, you know, got a lot of, you know, common stuff there, you know, when you got into politics and stuff, or can Kiwis actually expect to see more deals so between cool. our two countries down the line? Because my there first, is, I mean, My first question is, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they mm. were of similar age. Uh, we, of course, uh, have... Uh, a higher proportion of men in politics. It, it's reality because two women meet. It's not simply because of their gender. John Key was obviously New Zealand's former prime minister. Arden shooting down what some are calling a sexist question by that reporter. She said that they were meeting because they are prime ministers. For context, they are two of the youngest world leaders. Ardern is 42, Marin is 37. They're no stranger to questions about their age or their gender. Most recently, you'll remember when Marin faced some backlash just because of videos of her dancing at a private party with her friends. They were leaked without her consent. But her supporters took to social media at that time, posting their own videos dancing, saying that critics were applying a double standard to her. One of them said, quote, why can't she party after work? Do we expect our leaders not to be human beings? And when it comes to that press conference, obviously, you know, there's a war in Ukraine. There's an energy crisis. There's a pandemic that's happening. A lot of important topics to talk about. We are just moments away from President Biden welcoming French President Emmanuel Macron to the White House. We're going to be there live for you. Plus, Kevin McCarthy making a plea to his party to stay united as he is trying to find his potential path to the speakership. Whether or not that's in jeopardy, we'll tell you next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. to the United States, and this visit demonstrates the strength of our partnership, our friendship, and our cooperation, and, and truly all as, as, as the background to an enduring relationship between the United States and France. A vice president and a president there. Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday, December 1st. Welcome to CNN This Morning. That was a French president, Emmanuel Macron, in Washington for the first state visit of Joe Biden's presidency. We're going to be live from the White House straight ahead. Also coming up, he has been coveting the post for years, but now that it is seemingly within grasp, will five Republicans block Kevin McCarthy's path to the House speakership? We'll discuss. All right, and her sister and her parents were killed in an alleged catfishing scheme, and now she is sounding a warning, saying the same thing could happen to anyone. We are also waiting for the release of a key inflation report. It'll give us more insight into how this economy is doing, plus why your boss may be more willing than ever to consider a four-day work week. That's a newsflash to us here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but first we're going to start this morning with the arrival of the French president and his wife at the White House. We're waiting on that to happen any moment now. It is the first state visit that has been hosted at the White House since President Biden took office, obviously because of the pandemic. Biden and Macron are expected to meet and talk about Ukraine, Iran, China, space. They're also going to hold a joint news conference this morning before a black tie dinner tonight. As you see here, the two leaders and their wives had a little informal dinner in Washington last night. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House for us this morning on the South Lawn where they are getting ready to have this. I love these state visits because they're so fascinating with all this pomp that we have not really seen in the last several years. But there are some really serious issues, MJ, for these two leaders to talk about. 
Yeah, Caitlin, as you mentioned, you can see that it is a very different setup this morning. We are coming to you from the south lawn of the White House, where any minute now we are expected to see the French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife, the First Lady of France, arrive here at the White House for President Biden's first state visit that he is hosting at the White House. Uh, we will begin with the morning arrival ceremony. That will be a big deal. You can hear the band playing behind me. And then, of course, the day will end with the big state dinner where hundreds of guests are expected to attend this formal dinner. There will be a tent set up outside here on the South Lawn. If you are anybody who is anyone in Washington, D.C., you want an invitation to this dinner. Uh, but I should talk about the middle portion of the day. That is the working portion of the day where the two leaders are going to have a lengthy bilateral meeting followed by a press conference. And as you said, there are so many things for the two men to discuss on the agenda, including things like the ongoing uh, war in Ukraine, challenges posed by countries like China and Iran. So it is going to be a very busy day, Caitlin. And, you know, you can't ignore the tension that happened between these two leaders when the Biden administration basically pushed France out of that deal that they had for the nuclear submarines with Australia. It caused a lot of issues between the two of them. I know that will be a backdrop here, but uh, we are told China is expected to be one of the biggest focuses. That's absolutely right. Senior administration officials have been very clear that China is at the very top of the list of issues that the two men are expected to discuss. And what officials have basically said to reporters is that, look, uh, the two countries don't see exactly eye to eye on this complicated issue, but really that there are so many areas where they should be speaking from a common script. Uh, we are, of course, talking about the fact that uh, China poses an economic uh, competitive issue around the world, uh, how China has been dealing with the war in Ukraine and also how the two leaders are dealing with uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping. Uh, you know that a couple of weeks ago, President Biden himself had a very lengthy bilateral meeting with Xi Jinping. And we are told that the two men are going to be trading notes uh, on how they deal with Xi Jinping, especially because Macron himself has said that he might be making a visit to Beijing sometime soon. So again, that middle portion of the day, of course, is the most important uh, diplomacy-wise. But right now, it feels all pomp and circumstance out here uh, on the South Lawn. Yeah, and we'll see what they say when they take questions from reporters. MJ, thank you. President Biden and President Macron kicked off this trip with a quiet dinner. But during the Trump administration, Macron's sometimes bromance, sometimes awkward relationship with the former president got the world's attention. have a very special relationship. In fact, I'll get that little piece of dandruff off. Little piece. We have to make him perfect. He is perfect. Long live France. Thank you. Yeah, thanks to you. Thank you. Thank you. I like him a lot. It's only a prediction. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Remember this? Remember this was... Do you remember that? 
<laughs> like it was yesterday, <laughs> truly. It was April 2018. I, I remember all of those moments. And also, you know, this is still a relevant issue because remember when the they took all those documents from Mar-a-Lago, there was something about the French president. We've asked French sources if they know what it is. They've said no, but it's just this whole dynamic between... Did everyone and notice the clock, the countdown clock yeah. for how long they held hands in that first? Men. I mean, yeah. no offense, but <laughs> men. 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 You don't have to shake hands for that long. <laughs> Don is Men place. can't hold hands? No, that's not what he's saying at all. The handshake. Uh, no, that okay. is not what she was saying. All right, we're waiting to see. We'll so, see how long Biden and Macron The thing that got me was the not the one where they were holding hands, shaking hands, but the one where they were in the, I don't know if they were on the lawn or they were walking back, and he's like, I like this guy, and they were like holding hands, <laughs> oh, walk, yeah. walking back to the Oval Office. That was, you know, a little bromance. Okay, we'll see how, what Biden and Macron do It is what it moments. is. It is what it is. Okay, it is, did World you know, AIDS World AIDS, AIDS Day today. And there are approximately 1.2 million people living in the U.S. with HIV today, many of them restricted on when they can donate blood. But the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is now considering revising their donor criteria, moving away from blanket assessments about donors to ones that consider risk for transmitting HIV. This is fascinating. Our Dr. Tara Narula is here. What's changing? Yeah, so let's take a little bit of a look back historically. And so in the early 90s, around 1985, is when we first saw this ban on men who have sex with men. So from 1985 until 2015, they were not allowed to donate blood at all. And this was really born out of the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic. And then in 2015, the FDA changed its plan and said, actually, you can, if you're a man who has sex with another man, donate blood as long as you've been abstinent for a year. Fast forward to 2020, the height of the COVID pandemic, when we saw a lot of shortages. They then amended it to say, as long as you've been abstinent within three months, you can donate blood. Now, a lot of groups, the American Medical Association, the Red Cross, in fact, 500 doctors and, and healthcare practitioners wrote an open letter sure. back in 2020 saying, look, these policies are based on stigma, not science. The ability to test for HIV has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. And so now we can actually find out if someone's infected within seven to 10 days of active infection. We also know that other countries have changed their policies, either eliminating these bans completely or using more of a questionnaire-based screening. Mm -hmm. And the issue really comes down to the fact that a lot of these groups are saying this should be a targeted screening approach based on your individual risk, whether you are high risk and how you have sex. What are your sexual practices? Not based on how you identify and who you have sex with. So, for example, there are a lot of men who have sex with men who are low risk. They use PrEP, they're in monogamous relationships, and they're not allowed to donate blood compared to men or women who have sex with the opposite gender, unprotected, multiple partners, they are allowed to donate blood. So there's a lot of issues here and a lot of groups saying this needs to change. So what are these changes from the FDA? What could they look like? Right. And so the FDA has not really given us a timeline when they're going to announce this, but they are planning to release some new guidelines, hopefully in the next couple of months. And they're basically basing this on a study that was commissioned based on community health centers using this questionnaire-based screening and to see, can that work better than these time interval uh, approaches? And also they're looking internationally at what other countries are doing. Mm -hmm. So as I said, there are a lot of other countries that have changed how they're handling this. So hopefully we'll be seeing some of these uh, updates soon. Science over stigma. Correct. Is the direction, finally. Finally, Thank yes. Thank you, doctor. Thank I you, doctor. it so much. So current, uh, current House, I should say, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is warning House Republicans get in line and support his bid for a speaker or expect disaster. Watch. Having a challenge on the floor is never going to be positive and it, 
Really, you turn the floor over to the Democrats when you do that. This is very fragile that we're the only stopgap for this Biden administration. And if we don't do this right, the Democrats can take the majority. If we play games on the floor, the Democrats can end up picking who the speaker is. We need to do this for the American people. We either are successful together or we will fail individually and we will not be given the possibility or the opportunity to be in the majority again. So at least five House Republicans say, as of now, they won't support McCarthy's leadership bid. So now what? What is next? So joining us now, CNN political analyst Jonathan Martin, senior political columnist at Politico. Good morning. So hey, glad you could be here. It's good to see you in person. So let's Thanks, talk. But, it's, but this is about raw numbers, okay? Yeah. So McCarthy needs 218 votes. If every other lawmaker besides those five on vote on party lines, he's two votes short. So is he really in danger here? He's in real danger. Now, the good news for McCarthy is that today is December 1st, not January 1st. So he's got a little bit of time to work those those members. Look, when you're the leader of a party in Congress, you have a lot of tools at your disposal, right? You can, you can offer carrots and sticks. And for the next month, McCarthy's going to be doing a lot of that, trying to reel in just enough people with sort of various uh, carrots, uh, perhaps a couple sticks. Two quick questions that are kind of combined. Yeah. If not McCarthy, who? Yeah. And how is this different from Paul Ryan and... 2015. Well, the obvious backup would be Steve Scalise, who's the number two from Louisiana, Don's home state, who is somebody who's seen as sort of a you know, mainstream conservative and isn't as despised, I guess, by the far right as McCarthy is uh, in the House. And in terms of the Ryan question, this is part of the challenge the House GOP has. There's no sort of Paul Ryan waiting in the wings here who can step forward and be a sort of broadly popular and sort of a super impressive pick. It's no offense against Steve Scalise. He's perfectly capable, but he just doesn't have the, the sort of background that Paul Ryan had. Ryan had been on a national ticket in 2012, yeah. obviously, before he became uh, Speaker of the House. Well, I've been struck by the Republicans who have come out in support of Kevin McCarthy at this very difficult time. He's saying, basically, if we don't stay united, Democrats are going to end up picking who's our House Speaker because the margin is so dang slim. Yeah, look, this doesn't happen in Congress, but it has happened in states over the years where you have a, a very tight legislature and there's some kind of a bipartisan deal to elect a compromised candidate. I think in a very polarized Washington, that's still pretty darn unlikely that you would see that kind of a, uh, a pick emerge from the political center, if you will. Uh, I think it's more likely, Caitlin, that we'll see uh, a Steve Scalise, a, a, a sort of conservative backup plan if McCarthy can't get there. Uh, could we talk about rail, rail strike and the president? Yeah. So Amtrak, Joe, right, and uh, union guy yeah. and someone who voted in favor of unions in a similar right. kerfuffle in 92. This is the president. Biden is now bucking the unions and saying it's just too economically devastating to let there be a yeah. strike. What, what, are we, what is the big context here? Christmas and not wanting to be a, a, a great Christmas. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, I think the fact is, is that Biden's fear of a rail strike causing a massive economic disruption before the holidays is the biggest driver in this. And I think um, he just wants to get a deal done because he feels like the, the fallout from this could be devastating if there is not an agreement. The real peril here, he believes, is he has more peril if there's a strike rather than if he upsets members of the Yeah, and what's striking about this is that labor has been somewhat quiet about this. They're not out there sort of jamming Biden day in, day out. So he's got some latitude on this. But the House is passing this. They've passed two separate provisions. One is this agreement, one that they had in September. One is for the sick pay 
Shade League, yes. which is what has been really at the center. Yes. Is, is the Senate going to pass that? That seems though? less likely, but, but because in the Senate you have to find 10 folks in the GOP to vote for that sick leave provision. It doesn't seem like today they're going to be able to find those votes. So can you talk to us about Gavin Newsom? I'd love to. Okay, so you have reporting on this. You know, what is, what is he's, he has said, I'm not going to run. Yeah. Going to run. I spent election night in Sacramento with Governor Newsom, kind of embedded with him in the governor's mansion watching the returns. And it was fascinating because he, here's somebody who's a very ambitious person, mayor of San Francisco, lieutenant governor, now governor. He's won three elections in five years, guys, because he won the recall last year. And here he is in the biggest state in America, the fifth biggest economy in the world. And he's got sort of nowhere to go because, like a lot of Democrats, he's bumping up against an incumbent president who appears to be poised to run for re-election. So what Newsom told me is, look, I'm not going to challenge Biden, but that he has conveyed to the White House very directly, you know, use me, send me out there. Send As a me, surrogate. Yeah, sort of a super surrogate to confront folks like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott in Texas, deploy me out there. And I think what he's getting at is that if Biden does run again in 2024, when he'll be almost 82 years old, that's going to be a Rose Garden campaign. And Biden's going to need people in the party to go out there on the trail sort of doing that kind of work. And I think Newsom is basically saying, sign me up for that. Oh, that's interesting. So he's basically saying he doesn't expect Biden to have this really aggressive campaign that he'll be doing. I think the that's the unspoken. Office. But I, I happened to be there when Biden called him on the phone that night. And I heard Newsom's side of the conversation, total dumb luck happenstance. And he directly told Biden, he said, put me in, coach. I'm ready to go. Great. There you go. Thanks, good guys. timing. Good, good reporter. <laughs> dumb luck. Dumb luck. Lucky than good, right? Absolutely. Both, both end. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. And now turning to this, a very serious turn. A woman whose parents and sister were killed last week in that alleged catfish triple homicide, pleading with parents to use her family's story as a warning. Please, parents, guardians, when you are talking to your children about the dangers of their online actions, please use us as a reference. More CNN this morning to come after the break. A California woman whose family was killed in that alleged catfish scheme is now urging other families to talk to their children about online safety, talk to them about what they're doing online. Detectives believe that a former Virginia police officer traveled to California in an effort to continue an inappropriate relationship he was having with the woman's niece, and he killed her family. CNN's Josh Campbell is joining us live from Los Angeles. Josh, the details of this story are just hard to hear, but she does have an important message about what she wants people to learn from this tragedy. That's right. This is truly a horrific case, Caitlin. And, you know, I've dealt with countless family members of crime victims over the years in both law enforcement and journalism. And that is always the toughest part of the job, knowing that so many of these people will be forever scarred by tragedy. But in this case, mere days after this triple homicide, these family members of those who were killed are bravely speaking out and warning parents out there about these online schemes that are targeting America's children. They tell us that they don't want any other family out there to have to experience the pain that they're having to endure. This horrific event started with an inappropriate online romance between a predator and a child. The child, a 15-year-old girl, is still in protective custody, undergoing trauma counseling and receiving extensive medical care after a law enforcement officer allegedly brutally killed her mother and grandparents. We have possible murder victims. 
Multiple victims. Then set the family's Riverside, California home on fire and took off with her, driving for two hours until a pursuit ended with her fleeing the car and the suspect shot and killed by law enforcement. The suspect, 28-year-old Austin Lee Edwards, was hired in Virginia by the Washington County Sheriff's Department just days before the murders, according to law enforcement, and was a former Virginia state trooper. We asked the same questions you all asked. How, how did this person uh, get past the background investigation? How did this person get past the polygraph investigation? Police say Edwards developed an online relationship with the teen on social media, posing as a teenage boy, texting her from Virginia. This was an adult that traveled across the country to kidnap a 15-year-old girl with the idea to kidnap her and kill and devastate our family. Police unsure if she was kidnapped or coerced. We don't know if this was the uh, first physical encounter they had. It, it's very possible it was, but we also don't know yet if he, if she knew that he was coming to California. This was a case of catfishing and much more, according to police, where the suspect impersonated another individual for the purpose of exploitation. This type of victimization takes takes place across every platform, social media, messaging apps, gaming platforms, etc. Police and the victim's families are urging parents to talk to their children and to monitor them. Please, please know your child's online activity. Ask questions about what they are doing and whom they are talking to. I work directly with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and in uh, 2021, they received over 22 million reports from uh, service providers and the community for exactly this sort of thing. And what is your message to parents out there? What guidance do you give them to try to make, perhaps you know, prevent something like this? Pay attention. Um, I think you'd be astonished to know how many parents just aren't paying attention to their uh, child's online activity. Now, Caitlin, detectives here tell me that they are pouring over a trove of online evidence, trying to determine the extent of the relationship between this suspect and this 15-year-old minor. They also tell me that they're working to determine whether there were other potential victims out there who may have been targeted by this former cop. Yeah, big concern for parents. Josh, thank you. You bet. Josh, thanks very much. Well, caught on video, the moment a base jumper slams into a cliff. Look at this. This is in Moab, Utah. Ooh. He is alive. I want to tell you this. How's he doing? We'll give you an update on his condition. Oof. And today we are remembering singer, songwriter, legend, Christine McPhee. You know that I'm falling and I don't know what to say. five things. We go now to CNN's Bren Jengrass. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Listen, we have some tragic news coming out of your home state, Caitlin. Two people have died in central Alabama after severe spawned more than 30 tornadoes in the south. Homes down trees and power lines and left thousands in the dark. The IRS has turned over six years of Donald Trump's federal tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. The handover had been on hold until the Supreme Court declined to intervene last week. The committee is planning to meet later today. I mean, look, I, I've had a bad month. Um, this has not been any fun month for me. The founder of collapsed crypto exchange FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, says he never tried to commit fraud on anyone, but admits that comes after his $32 billion company plunged into bankruptcy in less than a week. 
A warning about this next video that you might find disturbing. Caught on camera, dramatic video of a base jumper in Moab, Utah, who slammed oh. into a cliff on his way oh down. Oh my god. Oh no. Oh my god, is he just hanging there? Is he? Yeah. Oh my yeah. god, is right. He then dangled 70 feet off the ground when his parachute oh. caught the cliff's oh edge. Oh my the goodness. man was airlifted oh to the hospital. He's in oh. critical condition. Oh no. And this morning, the music industry is remembering a legend. And that, of course, is the iconic voice of Fleetwood Mac's Christy McVie and her song Don't Stop from the groundbreaking album Rumors. McVie died Wednesday after a short illness. Fleetwood Mac paid tribute in a statement saying she was the best musician anyone could have in their band and the best friend anyone could have in their life. Christy McVie was 79 years old. You can't help but sway. Just I know. heard you That's singing amazing. the break, Don. Yeah. She was amazing. Can we go back to the cliff jumper thing? I mean, if it had not been for the rock that grab the, I mean. Yeah. Wow. How do you get down, do uh, we know? Yeah, do we know? Airlifted in the Amazing. hospital, but critical condition, so Amazing. let's hope that he has a If it had not caught okay on recovery. that thing, on the rock. Oh. Wow. Oh, no. Yeah, should buy a lottery ticket yeah. today. Lucky, lucky, <laughs> thank, thank you, goodness. Wow. Okay, so on the economy, we're waiting for a key inflation report. That's gonna come any moment. We'll bring it to you straight ahead. Also, as the January 6th committee is staring down that fast-approaching deadline to finish its final report, sources tell CNN they're planning to discuss those potential criminal referrals. At a meeting tomorrow, we'll talk to Congressman Zoe Lofgren, who sits on that committee. Just a few moments ago, the Labor Department released new jobless claims numbers, a key inflation report. Let's talk about all of this with CNN Chief Business Correspondent, anchor of Early Start, Christine Romans, and CNN Business Correspondent, Rahel Solomon. Where do you want to start? So let's start with these PCE price index. It sounds like alphabet soup, right? But this is what the Fed watches. This is the Fed's favorite uh, inflation gauge. So year over year, this inflation gauge up 6%. That sounds like it's hot, right? But it's cooling from 6.2% in September, 6.2% in August. 6.4% in July. So going in the right direction, sort of showing those signs of, of, of peaking and overall month to month up 0.3%, which is also an improvement of the prior couple of months. The Fed likes to look at what's called the core deflator. So digging in and taking out some of the more volatile sectors. And that cooled a little bit too, 5% there uh, and 0.2% overall. So look, we still have inflation in the economy. We still have a lot of inflation in the economy. But it's not inflation that's raging higher and higher and higher every month, showing those signs of peaking, which is what a lot of people have been looking forward to seeing. And the White House said yesterday, after they saw that GDP for the third quarter, that they believed inflation's moderating those signs. Yeah, what I mean, it, I what do they take away from this? Yet another inflation report that shows that inflation is moderating, right? We got it the last time. We got the CPI report, the Consumer Price Index report, uh, this inflation report saying the same. One thing, not to be, you know, negative Nancy here, but one thing that we haven't seen yet in any of these inflation reports is really declining inflation. Right. We're seeing a slowing of growth, a moderation, That's as right. Christine pointed out. But we're still waiting for declines. And I think that will really be a turning point. 
But it's still a cooling, as we said. And it looks, you know the conversation, again, that we have been having about measuring the economy and yeah. the right metrics, what oh. have you. It is in the right direction. It is. And, and there is so much conflicting information. I was just telling Rahel outside in the break, flip a coin. We're either headed to a recession or the economy is just fine. Every day there's a different piece of data that gives you a different part of this story. The Fed would like to see some cooling here. The Fed has been raising interest rates aggressively to get inflation under control. But we heard from the Fed chief yesterday the job market is still very strong. 1.7 workers for every available job. But the Fed chief specifically mentioned that number saying, you know, you, this is a labor market that's doing very well, except you kind of don't want it to be doing so well when you're trying to get inflation under control. Christine, we've been working together, and you've been here longer. For 16 years we've been covering this. Yeah. We did the recession in yeah. the 2000s, oh, right? Remember? Let's not and, talk about it. <laughs> so, but is there anything in this, this is your expertise, that tells you where we are right now? I can tell you, I'm so glad you put that framing in, we are in such better shape today than we were in 2007, 2008, 2009. I mean, a completely different world. Balance sheets are fine. Look, consumers say they feel real crappy about the economy or they think the economy is real lousy. They are spending to go to Disney. They're spending to get on airplanes. They are waiting to spend on new cars because they don't have the cars that they want yet because of the chip shortage. So on the one hand, you have this anxiety about what's going to happen in the economy. And on the other hand, a 2.9% economic growth in the third quarter. Before the pandemic, that would be seen as just fine, maybe even great. So uh, the economy is maybe stronger than all of us worry words think it is. And you know what's interesting? Yesterday when we got the GDP report, the revision, it was revised up in part because of consumer spending. So yeah. to Christine's point, I mean, the all we powerful, feel the all-powerful American consumer. Yes, we love to spend and we continue to Never spend. Never count out a day at the shopping mall. <laughs> Thank true. you very much. Retail therapy, right? <laughs> yes. Thank you both. All right, the clock is ticking today for the January 6th committee. It is just weeks left before Congress's winter recess. The members say they don't expect to conduct any more interviews before delivering their final report in a few weeks. And this comes after sitting down with more than 1,000 witnesses, including some of Trump's closest allies and family, members of Pence's inner circle, Secret Service agents. You can see them pictured here. Also, other government officials. The committee wrapped up all of its interviews yesterday a final interview with the Wisconsin Speaker, Republican Robin Voss, about the pressure he faced from Trump to overturn Wisconsin's election results just as recently as this summer. That's, you know, it's one of those that, that it's very consistent. He makes his case, which I respect. Um, he would like us to do something different in Wisconsin. I explained that it's not allowed under the Constitution. He has a different opinion. Then he put the tweet out. So that's it. So joining us now to discuss all of this is Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. She is a member, obviously, of the January 6th committee. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us. And I want to start with that last interview that you had yesterday. What we were told is the final interview, so tell us if it's not. But what did Robin Voss tell the committee? Well, as you know, our rules don't allow us to discuss what witnesses say. But I can confirm that, you know, I believe this is the last witness. We have interviewed over a thousand people. It's been very thorough. Uh, some witnesses were more enlightening than others. <clears throat> but it's very clear that the former president engaged in a pressure campaign, some public, some private, uh, to get people to overturn the results of the election. And it, uh, uh, it really a, a kind of a coup attempt. And uh, that's a very serious matter. And we've uh, uncovered uh, elements of that. Some of it was overt. Some of it was was hidden. And of course, now we're in 
trying to finish up writing our report. It's December 1st. We have a month uh, at the most uh, to go, and we expect to be done well before the end of this month. And when should the American public expect to see that report, Congresswoman? Well, when we're done, well, you know, we've got to send it over to the government printing office um, and they'll produce the written report. We'll have a, a digital version as well. Um, and we're co actually compiling an interactive version. You can't do interactive on print. So it's a lot of work involved and uh, the members of the committee are actively involved in editing and making sure that what we release is actually tethered to the facts we found not going off on tangents or just opinions that we can't tie into the facts. Well, just to follow up on that, do you, should people expect that closer to Christmas or do you think it'll potentially be after the holidays? I don't know because we have to get it over to the printers and then the printers will, you know, okay. follow their own path. So I can't speak for them, but we'll get it done this month for sure. Okay, we'll be watching closely, of course. Tomorrow, I know there is the meeting about the criminal referrals. That has been something that people have been watching closely. How many criminal referrals do you expect to make, and will Trump be one of those? Well, I can't tell you that yet. We haven't had our meeting. And honestly, we meet multiple times a week, sometimes virtually, uh, and we've gone through. Uh, again, we want anything we send over to DOJ as a recommendation needs to be tethered to the facts that we found. And if we don't make a recommendation, and this is not relative to Mr. Trump or any other person, it doesn't mean necessarily that we don't think they're, that they shouldn't uh, investigate, but we want to make sure that we are on, on firm ground if we make any recommendations over to DOJ. Is it fair to say you are considering criminal referrals, though, for those Republican lawmakers who defied subpoenas from your committee? Well, we're, we're, we're trying to consider what to do with the um, members who defied uh, the uh, subpoena. There are uh, separation of powers issues um, that we're considering. That's very important to the members of the committee. The Constitution is important to the members of the committee. So we'll come to a resolution on that as well. And yesterday you saw Kevin McCarthy say that he wants the committee to preserve its findings, even what doesn't make it into your final report that you noted has to be printed. Are you concerned that when Republicans take over the House, they will try to undermine the work that the January 6th committee has done? Well, they've been pretty clear that they'd like to undermine the work that we've done, but we're going to prevent that. <clears throat> we're going to release all the information we've collected so it cannot be selectively edited and spun. Okay, so um, everything's that, going to be released. That's correct. Okay, that's, that's very good to know because one thing we heard from yesterday was the Attorney General Merrick Garland also talking about what he would like to see from the committee. This is what he told our colleague Evan Perez. We would like to have all the transcripts and all the, the other evidence collected by the community so that uh, by the committee so that we can use it in the ordinary course of our investigations. Congresswoman, when does the committee plan to turn over those transcripts and that evidence, all of it to the Justice Department? All of our evidence will be released this month. And, you know, the attorney general has his job and the Congress has its job. We're not an arm of the Department of Justice and they're not an arm of the Congress. We'd like to have all of their witness uh, transcripts and interviews as well, but quite properly, they have declined to do that. So they're going to have everything, okay. and they will have everything this month.
So they'll get the transcripts and the evidence when the public gets the transcripts and the evidence. Is that well, right? It, and it will be, that's correct. It will be very soon. Okay. And one last con- uh, question about, you know, why that hasn't been turned over already, because we had heard from some frustrated Justice Department officials who, who kind of wanted more of that information as you've been working. What's the reason for waiting to turn that over? Well, we, you know, we had a series of interviews that we wanted to uh, pursue without having leaks and dribbling out of information. Uh, we've now completed all of our interviews. We're working, honestly, we're going to scrub personal information. For example, if a witness gave their cell phone or their personal email, we're deleting that. It's unfair to, you know, have people uh, harassed by the public. But with the exception of that sort of information, we're going to release this all. And uh, certainly DOJ, we could give them the deleted phone numbers if they want, but the public will get uh, you know, all of this with with those personal uh, information uh, protected. All right. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, thanks for, for making some news there and giving us an update on, on the committee. You bet. I want to take you now to some live pictures there you see of the White House, because any minute now, the French President Emmanuel Macron will arrive at the White House for the first state visit of the Biden presidency. This is the, the pageantry of America, right? Right here. The White House looks beautiful, though, all adorned in a Christmas. A state visit is so is it amazing? fun when you're a White House reporter to cover this, just to see everything that comes together. Yeah, so they, they're a festive at the White House right now. Any moment now, we should tell you why we're looking at this. The French President Emmanuel Macron and his wife, Brigitte, uh, arriving at the White House. Biden and Macron are expected to hold bilateral talks on Ukraine, Iran, and China ahead of a joint news conference later today. Kate Bennett, right in the middle of it now, standing by live at the White House. Hello to you. The Bidens are really going all out here for this first state dinner, aren't they? They really are. As you can see, this is really the pinnacle of uh, diplomacy. It's the red carpet times a million for the United States, for France today. There'll be a 21-gun salute here even later uh, this morning. But I will say the dinner tonight is really uh, going to be big, about 400 guests. You can't see, but just off the South Lawn here, a little further down, there's a large... The White House is calling it a pavilion, but it's a tent that's been erected uh, where the guests will come tonight and have dinner, uh, this spectacular multi-course dinner that's going to feature some uh, butter poached lobster from Maine uh, and some a beef Maine course uh, and an orange chiffon cake. You know, the trick of these state dinners is always to combine the two countries... Hungry. you got to combine the two countries in a way that feels seamless. So, like, they're going to be French-made champagne flutes, but filled with American sparkling wine. Mm. There'll be a cheese course, but it'll be American cheeses. So it's sort of that blend of uh, getting the two countries together in this menu. Um, The colors are going to be red, white, and blue. I saw a glimpse of the tables yesterday. It's, um, you know, it's the Statue of Liberty is one of the hallmarks of the program tonight. Uh, there are beautiful silver candelabras that sort of mimic 
the idea of the Statue of Liberty, of course, a gift to the uh, United States from France. And Jean-Baptiste, I know you guys talked about this earlier yeah. this week, will be the entertainment tonight. Uh, he will be performing inside that pavilion, that tent. There will be dancing, I hear. Uh, so it should be a very fun evening. You know, this is the first state dinner for the Bidens. That's why there are a lot of guests. that They've been waiting quite some time to put this dinner on. So it's certainly going to be a pretty spectacular evening. Kate, for sure. Thank you. Uh, we'll take a doggy bag. <laughs> Overnight it. I'll try chiffon, to save you some. Orange chiffon cake. And champagne. Yum. Thank you. Enjoy. Appreciate I'll it. I'll save it for you. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Also, we want to show you this at first, a first, a rather, first, I should yeah. say, at the World Cup. Look at that. What do you see on your screen there? The fir for the first time, a woman will be the lead referee for a men's World Cup soccer game. Stephanie Frappert will lead an all-female referee trio offici officiating Costa Rica versus Germany in their Group E match later today. Mm -hmm. So, uh, are we going to the big state visit or are we ad-libbing here? We're talking, oh, are we talking about our coverage? Is that what we're, no, I just want to know, are we? Poppy's face. <laughs> okay, so we're talking, about, we're talking about sports and women in sports because we had this very animated conversation earlier. Part of it was unjust, and a lot of people, I assume, were offended by some of the things that I said, but, you know, um, I'm not sexist, by the way. We were having he's, a, he's not, by no, the we're way. Having a conversation someone who's was, been your friend for a decade. Yes. Look, I grew up in a family of all women. You know, not, this is an excuse, all women. And so I am used to having conversations with women who are strong and who stand up to me. And that's, I think you two women are strong and you stand up to me, and I appreciate that. I also think but, it's just a good conversation to have yeah. because there are people out there who, who share what you were saying earlier and, and view it that way. And I think that's why it's important to talk about it because it's, it's the question of why is it this way when we talk about what women are paid and what that looks like. I mean, we saw this play out in the, the international stage when it came to women's soccer and as they were pushing back. But it's been, it happened in tennis, you know, remember in the 1980s, and they fought over the fact that they were paid so much. They were paid hundreds of dollars for winning the U.S. Open. Men were paid thousands of dollars. And it's an interesting conversation to have about why there is the pay disparity. So I want you to make the point that you were trying to make earlier. I was just saying that it's institutionalized in a sense of that there have been so many more decades of marketing and promotional aspects when it comes to men's sports. It's not just about the pay. It's where they yeah. play. It's the kind of coaches they have. It's the kind of treatment they get. I agree with you on that. We were talking about pay. I completely agree with you on that. And I agree, like, the women's facilities, if you look at what happens at the Olympics, and those are different. But pay is a whole different story. That's not, we weren't talking about these issues. We were this is that you have up there. That is, that is problematic. But um, go ahead, Poppy, and say what you say, and then I'll... Um, just building on Caitlin's point that I think is really good, and it's so well put, um, this year marks 50 years since Title IX, but Title IX doesn't exist beyond college. So here's the problem. When you get to professional sports and you get to, like, soccer, we're seeing this at the World Cup, but you get to the WNBA, and I sat down last year with Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner of the WNBA, to talk about why the heck those folks are paid so much less. By the way, do you know why Brittany Griner went to Russia? Because she had to supplement her pay. That's right. That, that's exactly right. And let me just finish that's what Kathy Engelbert said to me is she goes up to big media execs at big companies and big, you know, tech companies who pay for advertising and who p decide to put women's sports on their screens, on their channels and ask them why there is not more equality. 
And she says, she tells them to put their money where their mouth is all the time when they talk about equality. And I asked her, do you believe that WNBA players are missing out on more equal pay because they're not getting the media coverage they deserve, the eyeballs they deserve for people to see what great players they are? And she said, there is no question about it. So I think you have to put it there for people to, more people to see. Look, I understand, and that's a reality for her and for you. Here's, here's, it's, um, it's not just here's for my, us, it's the reality. Okay, but here's, here's, listen to what I'm saying here. Um, I think all of that is an issue, and it should be addressed. When I sit here, I'm not necessarily speaking for 100% of what I believe. Yeah. I'm talking about also what people believe, and here are men in the studio. When I said the analogy in the sports bar, that is true. Men think that, and women. I've had my mother, and she's going to say, I would much prefer to watch a man's event than a woman's event, but I'm a woman, and I think women should be paid equally. Okay? So I can understand. There's nuance in it. And by saying that, that doesn't make you sexist. It's, it's, a, re, it's a reality. Hang on one second. So I'm just saying that if there is more interest in a men's sport, the business people, the people who make money off of sports, We'll put that on television because we live in a capitalist society. And if people are interested in that, then there would be more attention and more money would be paid. So it's about the money. But here's Caitlin, the thing, and this word. is the point that I, have, that I was making that goes to that, which is why is that what people are watching? It's because it's what they're used to watching. Why is it because it's what they're used to watching? Because men were putting men's sports on TV yes. way before women's sports. Yes. So it's the systemic institutionalized okay. thing. No, I'm not done yet. they are just more interested Don, in it. But it's, but why are they more, but you're missing my point. <laughs> why are they more interested? Because men's sports has been around longer. People have been paying attention to it more. There have been these amazing female sports stars that have only become household names in recent decades. That's the point. And I'm saying if, if they had both started at the exact same point, they had both received the same amount of marketing and promotion and all that stuff, and then we got to where we are today, that would be a different point. Guess what, media, big media giants, big advertisers, this is another opportunity to put the money where your mouth is. I don't believe that's accurate. I respect your point, and I hear what you're saying. I don't believe that's accurate. We live in a capitalist society, and if people can make money off of whatever it is, they are going to exploit it. And there is a reason, and once part, I'm sure it's part of what you are saying, and it's part of what you're saying, and these are conversations that we need to have, but I just think that can, can I, we, I just think that we are lying to ourselves if we believe that someone cannot sit here and speak the truth to can I read you a, what we're. Can I read you a headline? About. This is yeah. a fact that my smart producer Annie gave me. Quote from Forbes: The fastest-growing audiences on TV are for women's sports. Growing. But that's because their <laughs> ad dollars go. You're missing the point. They're coming. They're start, coming at a later starting point than men's sports were. That's the whole point here. You know what? <laughs> wait. No. I, this is it's, why I, I love. Very good, wait, wait. I have a very good friend. I'm you have the last word. I have a very good friend who Caitlin just texted me who said, "Be careful. It is about the money." It's not about the money, but it is about the money. And I'm glad that you're saying that, but be careful because people are going to think that you are sexist. And I'm not. not. I'm just speaking to the reality of how people feel. But we're just saying let's look at the root of why people feel That's, that way. Yeah, okay. This is why I'm, I'm okay with waking up. That's why I'm okay with waking up at 2.30 in the morning. I'm not kidding <laughs> because I get to be with you guys. What's important conversation? We're going to keep... I think this Having is it after and I think that we should we should invite we should invite Megan on we should invite Megan Rapino. Megan Rapino. I said we should she should come on WNBA. Who, I think we, we know how she things. feels about this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, look, and I never said women should get paid less. I think no, women should, should get paid more, but you know, 
We do too. You guys we think they should get paid last equal. word. Equal. Yeah, more than they are equal to men. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here tomorrow for you. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.